0: This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston.
1: And I'm Brian Latendry, And today we are going to be talking about the 1979 Turning Point album for ACDC, Highway to Hell.
0: It was a Turning Point for them, wasn't it? Yeah. I, I, you know, I I mean, ACDC is a band that have been around. Yeah, they're one of the longest lived sort of, you know, hard rock, heavy metal, however you want to classify it. Band sure. around. Everybody knows who AC/DC are. It's like Kiss or something. Everybody knows who they are. Um, and yet I'd never really looked into their background and their, you know, sort of formation and development before, you know, researching for this episode. So it's a, it's an interesting story.
1: It is a very interesting story. And one that I still think a lot of people really have very little sort of general awareness of, because really for, if you live in the United States, um, for many people, ACDC begins with back in black, right? Right. And so, the Bon Scott and and for me as a kid growing up, my introduction to ACDC was in the Brian Johnson era. Of course, mm, I was alive sure. when when the Bon Scott era was there, but really it was the uh, Brian Johnson era where I became really fully aware of ACDC and had to go back and learn about the Bon Scott era of ACDC. And I think that's the case for for a lot of people um, because most of the music that is referenced when someone mentions acdc is brian johnson era stuff and that's because of movies like iron man 2 and stuff like that like the 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 popular songs that have made their way back into commercials or made their way into movie soundtracks or whatever are um are sort of of that era and really acdc did not break in the united states until this album and so really it was just one album from bon scott that broke in the u.s and then the brian johnson era and then everything began. else is brian yeah, absolutely johnson, yeah yep.
0: i mean so. that was pretty much the same in the uk is what i gather and certainly from my own memory i uh I, I mean i was seven years old when this album was released so yeah i mean i don't think i ever heard it at the time yeah Growing i was five up, yeah as a kid i knew of acdc and i knew they had the guy with the flat cap singing you know but also because of their connections to the uk there was maybe a little bit more sort of just general knowledge. I remember learning very early on from somewhere that they had had a singer before then who died uh, and that, you know, Brian Johnson was the replacement. But that was, it was just something that you knew. It wasn't something that I kind of could tell you the details of. Right. Um, because, yeah, as you say, Back in Black, that was, I mean, this was the breakthrough album, but Back in Black was the huge album. That Absolutely. was the one that, you know, everybody knows and everybody's heard um interesting thing about this album i think actually i said at the end of the last episode i i think i said that i wasn't sure if i'd heard this album all the way through turns out that's because i've never owned it before uh but it turns out that i had and as soon as i started playing it i realized what it was um i think i've mentioned before on the show that when i worked in a design studio we had a cd player in the corner and uh-huh. the three designers in the studio would eat, we would all take it in turns to play different records well before that we had an even smaller studio where there was just two of us and a tape player, not even CDs. So <laughs> long ago it was. Um, and the other guy in the studio had a, uh, a tape with, I believe it was Highway to Hell on one side and Back in Black in the other. Uh, and he would play, you know, both sides of that tape through occasionally. And so I did get to know this album. This was many years ago, like I say, but I did get to know this album then. Um, and so even though I've never owned it, as soon as I was listening to it, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this. Oh yeah, I remember this. <laughs> All these yeah. riffs coming back to me.
1: Well, and certainly on this album, as we go through a couple of songs that are still in the regular rotation of you know what you would consider the ACDC playlist for sure yeah. uh, off of this album. So so yeah, lots of good stuff to dig in on this one. But, uh, but before we do that, let's talk well, about... Uh, well let's, epi- well let's talk about the last episode. Well let's talk about the last
0: episode first. That last episode I thought when I was editing it that that was going to be our longest ever episode. It actually wasn't because of course we did two albums in one in our Halloween episode. So that remains our longest album I think just by virtue of the fact that we covered two albums. But the last episode was our third longest. The only other ones that exceeded it are Halloween and believe it or not the Exodus episode. That's our second longest I'm okay episode. With that. Yeah, but who would have guessed that? You'd think that it would be something like the Queensryche episode, which is long, don't get me wrong, but yeah, bizarre.
1: I'm really comfortable with the Halloween episode being our longest episode. I would be comfortable if that held all the way through as our longest episode ever, because uh, someone... Given that
0: it's something like 2 hours 40, yeah, I mean... (laughs)
1: I don't know if it was on our Facebook group or if it was at work, maybe it was in Slack at work or something like that, but there was something about a, a, like a 10 or 12 minute song or something like that. And then my response was basically, there's only one song over 10 minutes long that deserves to be in existence and it is Halloween (laughs) from Halloween. Uh, And that is it. And so, uh, and it made me go back and listen to that one again. And I think I told you that when I went to see Halloween on the Pumpkins United tour, they freaking opened with that song
0: that's crazy isn't it fancy it's, opening with uh, that.
1: May, like i i just remember turning to matt and saying i cannot believe that they opened with that song and i cannot believe that that song serves perfectly well as an opening song to a live show like i mean the only problem just,
0: is for you it can only go downhill from there because that's your favorite song of theirs
1: <laughs> i mean it's so good but it's like i just couldn't believe they had <laughs> the audacity to open the show with that i was like wow
0: That is is, kind uh, of crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It was insane. uh,
1: Yeah. Um, Speaking of insane, we got over 100 comments on the...
0: We had a lot of comments on that, didn't we? Yeah.
1: Which is so interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of them was our back and forth discussion with Scott about uh, Metallica and Megadeth and and all things in between. But lots of good feedback on this episode. So... um, Joe said, uh, listening to the podcast, I disagree with Brian, at least from my perspective. As a big fan, since P-Sells was released, this was the first album that I did not buy. My brother got it, and I didn't care for it. Uh, I thought Countdown was Megadeth's transition album. And I think there was a good amount of people who are in agreement with that, that they feel like Countdown to Extinction was the sort of turn towards a more commercial sound. and you mm-hmm. could certainly make that case with like foreclosure of a dream and stuff like that, sweating bullets, like definitely um, that. so I could totally see that perspective. Uh, Charles said, I'm 100% on Anthony's side on this one. There's something about Mustaine's voice that just makes me unhappy, which made me a little bit sad. <laughs> just like <laughs> uh, it's like listening to someone do a long parody of a metal singer. He's somewhere between meatloaf and a skill saw. <laughs> I really feel bad for the musician of that the musicians of that band. They're clearly talented, and some of their riffs are just amazing. Yeah, he definitely has one of those.
0: It's polarizing. I, it's I absolutely guess... polarizing. It's like the guy from Exodus. It's you know, well, you just kind see, of...
1: that's the thing that blows me away. Is that I and obviously I'm too close to it, being a huge Megadeth fan. But uh, I see such a disparity between you know Mustaine and like a Steve Souza from Exodus or Mustaine and even a brian johnson from acdc right like like to to me those guys are they have a love it or don't love it voice you know whereas with Mustaine, i just kind of felt like it was it was decent at one point and not so good now you know um but yeah a lot of people are really put off by his voice
0: yeah it is like i say and i can't i've never been able to put my finger on it the meatloaf uh comparison there i think is very weird because meatloaf to me has a very Good and inoffensive voice, but you know, whatever. Uh, Maybe that does divide people. But yeah, Mustaine's, I've never been able to put my finger in it. I cannot say exactly what it is about his voice that turns me off, but there's just something that, yeah, I don't know, it grates on me.
1: To me, it's when he tries to get melodic. Like he's. See, I wish he could get melodic more often. (laughs) Yeah, see, well, and there was a time where he could kind of do that, and that time has passed. And so, you know, when he tries to do that on the more recent albums, it just doesn't work. I mean, you could argue that it maybe never worked, but it definitely doesn't work now. Whereas when he's just kind of spitting venom, that to me is where he is fitting what this band was sort of founded on. Um, and so I think that's when he's sort of at his best, but, uh, Yeah, let's see what else. So Stuart said, this episode was splendid. The disagreement between Anthony and Brian was hilarious. The disappointment in Brian's voice as Anthony poured buckets (laughs) of cold water on his enthusiasm. (laughs) I love that Brian enjoys the album so much. It means someone does, because I really don't, to be honest. But then so far, so good. So what is the only Megadeth I've heard that I enjoy? And I've re-listened to that one loads of times. Um, And he was very happy about the ACDC pick. Lots of people were very happy, which made me happy about- acdc being picked uh mike says
0: there was was definitely a feeling from a lot of people of of finally you know that they'd been waiting for us to do an acdc album so uh yeah you know that was reassuring
1: yep uh mike said such a great episode nice to hear the lively discussions and disagreements actually after listening to the album again i quite like five or six tracks which was a real surprise Uh, obviously used in asia isn't a classic but it's not bad and i'll probably listen to it again sometime soon uh let's see. Chris said, let the games begin. I would describe euthanasia as not bad. To me, not bad means if I was out somewhere and this record was on, I would be cool with it with being there, but then I would forget about it when it was over. Uh so he's not gonna go and uh and switch the channel at the uh at the party. Right. Uh, he says, but he's also not agree.
0: gonna rush out and buy a copy soon either.
1: Right. He said, I agree with Brian that Blood of Heroes is the best song on the record. Man. I know. <laughs> Let that what one sink in, Anthony. Let that <laughs> one sink in. I'm going to double down on that in a second because Phil said I'm not quite through the episode, but I have, uh, but uh, I got to their reactions to Blood of Heroes. And is it just me or is everyone else as upset as I am to hear our parents arguing? <laughs> he said, uh, "By the way, Anthony, I too would be absolutely miss this track, probably my second favorite on the record." Um, that probably doesn't surprise you because I, I feel like my and Phil's uh, musical tastes. There's a lot of overlap in that, that There's diagram. a lot
0: of crossover there, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, he said, I actually think this is a pretty good Megadeth album. I like it okay, which for me is saying a lot. I just cannot listen to Mustaine's vocals for extended periods of time. Uh, Mark said, I am firmly in the Antony camp when it comes to anything Megadeth. I'm right in line with Brian, though, with his love of all things Bond. Scott, this will be enthusiastic homework. Uh, let's see. David said, this was the last Megadeth album I ever bought. Far too many mid-tempo plotters. And Dave's nasal voice really gets on my nerves on this one. Many years ago, there was a review in Guitar World magazine for this album, uh, for the album Slave to the Thrill by the band Hurricane. The review merely said, may induce vomiting. That's kind of how I feel about <laughs> euthanasia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, okay, I mean, you have to feel bad for the bands, but occasionally there is nothing quite, quite like one of those Just very short, dismissive reviews.
1: (laughs) Well, especially because, you know, most reviews don't go there, right? Right, To to be that uh, (laughs) critical of an album. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Don said, as I stated before, this is one of the first Megadeth albums I could tolerate. What this album and stuff from Risk and Cryptic Writings do is give me a respite from the spoken snarl and guitar gymnastics from the earlier stuff. And I think that comment goes back to right what I was saying before, right? For me the spoken snarl and guitar gymnastics are megadeth for me right like yeah. that is what i that that to me is the world state of the art speed metal band that was the that's the early days that i you know really really love which is why i i continually go back to uh killing it is my business like listen to it all the time a lot of people can't stand that album um i absolutely adore it so but but there you go and so it's kind of like um you know, Wait, why do view.
0: people dislike Killing Is My Business? I thought the whole point of those you know, those first few albums was that they're regarded as classic Megadeth.
1: Uh, I don't know if everybody else is on the same page with me about this, but my sense is that people feel like Peace Cells is a much better and more polished early indicator of Megadeth than Killing Is My Business, which is very – the production is not great on that album – um, but what I like about that album is the classical influence is much more prevalent on that first album. Um, some of the riffs are just absolutely brutal and Gar Samuelson is just amazing on it. And so I, that's, if you what depending on what day of the week it is, uh, there's many days that I will <laughs> tell you that that's my favorite, um, Megadeth album. Oh, right. But, um, but yeah, a lot of people didn't dig that one, but then Peace Cells was, you know, they got into. And then there's people who jumped on on Rust in Peace, and then, you know, that kind of stuff, so.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, let's see. Andy said, okay, so I went into this thinking I'd be Team Anthony all the way, and it turns out I disagreed with both of you about Equally. Megadeth are never going to be my favorite band. I dislike Mustaine's voice, uh, like lots of others, and their musicianship is just lost on me. Like uh, the Tom Waits joke about doing card tricks for a dog. He said, <laughs> I was honestly never going to love this album, but... I gave it a lot of spins last month trying to crack it, and although I didn't come to love it, I do at least respect it now. They're not incompetent. Every bizarre, baffling, weird choice made on the album was obviously deliberate, and the more I listen to tracks like Addicted to Chaos, Too Le Monde, uh, I Thought I Knew It All, and Black Curtains, all favorites of mine, overly fussy playing and plotting tempos and ugly sneering vocals and all, I realize these dudes can be pretty good at what they do. That is... That is quite a backhanded compliment um (laughs) that he (laughs) there's there's a lot of qualifiers in that in that compliment there but uh but what i love about this comment is i gave it a lot of spins in the last month trying to crack it
0: right it's fair yeah that is
1: all that we ever ask like that sentence right there you could straight up hate the album and i would I'll be fine with it because you gave it a lot of spins trying to crack it. Um, so I love that. It's 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 uh, it's the exact opposite of dismissive. So it's great stuff. Uh, Dave said, this is a fun episode to listen to. I enjoyed Anthony Snark because I used to be into Megadeth, but I don't really like them or Mustaine much these days. Going into this episode, I couldn't remember when I stopped being a fan and then I listened to this album again and was reminded that <laughs> Euthanasia was where I checked out.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kenneth like we said, could provide that service. <laughs>
1: yes, uh, Kenneth uh, got a kick out of when I said that you listen to typo negative as a response to one of your uh, oh yeah. dismissive <laughs> comments. I think it, I think your comment was about the cheesiness. Of, I think it uh, was. It
0: was about cheese. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and by the way.
1: If anyone hears a dog barking in the background, that is my dog losing his mind because I'm sure another dog dared to walk down the sidewalk
0: How uh, dare today.
1: So he is uh, he's just got to make sure that they continue on their way. Uh, Darren said, Euthanasia, to me, contains some of Mustaine's least grating vocals. There is some great melodic stuff happening on this record, which I really appreciate. Train of Consequences, The Killing Road, Elysian Fields, and the title track are probably my favorites on the record. It's not very fast, not very thrashy, but it's decent songwriting at the very least that complements the band's musicianship rather than working directly against it. Mm. Interesting. Which,
0: you know, again, thoughtful. And as you say, that's kind of, I mean, you know, that could be, we we have our, uh, the show already has a subtitle as it were, but you know, that could be the other one (laughs) is uh, as you say, you know, just give everything, well, as you say, you know, your three listens or whatever, but yeah, just, you know, approach everything with an open mind. Um, I mean, even I did, you know, I, yes, I know I, I'm not, I'm confessedly not the world's biggest Megadeth fan, but I I still tried to find good things in that album, and I did find one or two, but just not enough for me. Yeah,
1: and and Uh, the rest is kind of diminishing returns here. Uh, David said, challenging episode for me. I share Anthony's visceral aversion to Mustaine's vocals, and it's kind of heartbreaking to hear riffs I actually like ruined for me by his voice. Uh, Wayne said, not a terrible album, but a long way off their best. I can somehow picture Elysian Fields being sung by Ozzy. Uh, I kind of get that vibe from it. I could probably yeah, see I could that. Just about see that? Yeah. Maybe just kind of the vocal approach in that one. Uh let's see. Andrew said, still working my way through, but am I the only person who thinks train of consequences sounds like guns and roses?
0: A little, I suppose. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Uh John said, my two cents is that this is mega dull. <laughs> 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 We'll allow it. We'll allow it. Uh, Andrew said, entertaining episode. I actually didn't mind the album. Doubt I'd dust it off again, but it was an enjoyable commute. I was a big fan of Countdown to Extinction when it came out, but never got this for some reason. Makes sense that I'm partial to their sound from this era. That being said, I can't see myself rushing out to explore further. Art said, was the
0: sentiment of a lot of people, really, wasn't it?
1: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Especially people who are probably wouldn't even classify themselves as Megadeth fans or maybe as casual Megadeth fans, just that yeah. this, this one isn't moving the needle for them. Um, Art said, after listening to the episode, here are my thoughts. I really like the first half of the album as opposed to the second half much more than they did. I really like Reckoning Day and Train of Consequences. And what I found to be an odd criticism was its use of harmonica as if it's an instrument that's never been used in metal. And I think you replied to this. I, th- I think that um, your point being that It's not a
0: part of Megadeth sound. Like, you know, I have have nothing against harmonica per se, but I thought in this context and on that track, it just did not fit for me at all. Uh, And yeah, it's not like every other track of theirs has a harmonica on it, you know?
1: Uh, He also said, and this kind of uh, is going to connect to our current episode I also found it unusual criticism that the songs were too simple, especially considering that ACDC is the next band being covered and their songs aren't uh, considered technically proficient. Yeah. I would argue that point, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. Uh, is it maybe that we expect Megadeth to have songs that are all about guitar wizardry and prowess, and maybe that's why people don't like its simplicity, because they expect more from Megadeth? That is an interesting point, and I would say, for myself, there are times where I do expect more from Megadeth. This album, in in a, in a few ways, I would say yes, there are, there are things that I think are a little bit too simple that I would— like to have seen them do more with for me when i talk about an album like super collider that is the one where i my my takeaway from that album was megadeth are better than this 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 and
0: that was i mean you know not to bring it up again but you made the comparison yourself when we were talking about the album to metallica's black album and that was a criticism that a lot of people had about the black album was that you know this the simplistic playing it and it's not that simplistic if you've ever tried to play it but you know simplistic compared to ride the lightning or master of puppets or god forbid you know and justice for all um that it was somehow beneath them and that they they had dumbed down by playing these simplistic riffs so it's uh you know it's a criticism that's been leveled at a fair few bands when they've approached music in that way
1: well speaking of metallica the chief litigator for the metallica defense force scott also <laughs> chimed in on this episode and uh I love Scott's thoroughness in his replies. My, my only problem ever with Scott in some of his responses is that they tend to be absolutes. This is either 100% this or 100% this, and that's, uh, that's where I have a challenge with some of the stuff that he said. However, um, his feeling was that nobody liked Euthanasia when it first came out, uh, and he really took uh, umbrage to the comparisons to this being Megadeth's Black Album. Um, however, he said something in there that other people picked up on, uh, and I'm going to pull this quote directly. This album is Mustaine trying and failing to write his Black album. That is a very interesting thought. And, and it made me think, because other people picked up on that. Uh, let's see.
0: Well, I think the idea, because you again, you said yourself during the episode, I think the idea that this was him trying to write his version of the Black Album. I I think that's, I wouldn't say indisputable, but certainly seems very, very likely. Whether or not he failed is more a matter of taste and opinion.
1: Well, and here's the through line that I think goes from that point to cryptic writings to the album we're going to talk about today. What do you think was the biggest factor in the Black Album, maybe not being successful, but in the, in the sort of pivot that that album meant for Metallica.
0: I, I wish I knew because it's the kind of thing, you know, if if you, if you, if anybody knew the actual answer to that question, you know, you could bottle it and sell it for a million dollars. Well, I think you you probably could,
1: you probably could bottle it because to me, it's a person it's Bob rock. And so,
0: but is it though? Because, you know, look at the later albums he did with Metallica, which were nowhere near as commercially successful. But oh, sorry, no. I should actually no. They probably were as commercially successful. Yeah, me, but they weren't as culturally well received.
1: Well, and, and again, that particular album from Metallica was well received by the mainstream, maybe not by some of the old oh, sure, school but, Metallica I mean, on fans, a, on a right? mass but, scale, yeah, yeah. But there is no denying what Bob. I mean, there was there was people who were petitioning to have Bob rock like have a restraining order from him being able to come within a hundred feet of Metallica (laughs) because it it legitimately like there was, there was people who blamed him for the changes to Metallica sound, right. Whether that's fully accurate or not, but the talent and vision and willpower that he brought to working with Metallica, because who at that time, that's like, that's like sending in uh, an editor to work with Stephen King. Right?
0: Oh sure, yeah, but right. at the same time, the band were willing. You know, they wanted what he could bring, and they were willing to go along with it. You know, a band like that, and certainly, yeah, you know, in comparison, as you say, an author like Stephen King has the power to, and we actually see this. This will come up a little in uh, with this ACDC absolutely album, you know, has the power to go. Actually, this ain't working. Fuck off. We'll get somebody else in.
1: And so, uh, and a visionary producer if allowed to do what they do best can have an unbelievable impact on an album and you know by ripple effect a band's career right oh absolutely so absolutely i think when we talk about this album because it made me think scott's comment about this was mustaine trying and failing to write his black album max norman is the producer on this album, right? And from the videos that I watched and stuff like that, it seemed like they had a pretty good relationship with Max Norman in the studio, but I never got the sense that what he b- brought to that table was what Bob Rock brought to the table with Metallica, or as right. we talk about ACDC, what Mutt Lang brought to the table with ACDC, right? And so, okay,
0: yeah, I, can see I where think you're you could from, just yeah. make
1: the argument that one of the, Biggest hindrances to Mustaine's larger success is Mustaine's inability to bring in a producer who is maybe bigger than him, and who he will cede control to in a way that will allow that producer to actually bring their vision for what their sound could be to life. Right.
0: Right, and help them elevate. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly, uh, and so because he's he. It's a control thing, right? And that's where you have to give uh, Lars and James a ton of credit of being able to work with a producer, knowing how, how uh, strong-willed both of those guys are, right? To be able to work with a producer to achieve something that they could not achieve without that person. Mm. And well so, and you
0: you saw that in the uh the year and a half in the life of Metallica videos which is a released. fascinating like, like yeah and you can see that there is tension and there are conflicts there between the three of them for sure it, you know in the studio but ultimately what comes out of it is yeah you know obviously a, a classic you know enormously successful album that changed the face of rock music you could argue changed the face of music full stop so it was worth it but you can see that it wasn't a smooth ride
1: right and so, not to say that 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 of course, if if Meta- if Megadeth had worked with a Bob Rock or someone of that uh, of that level, you know, on this particular euthanasia album, that it would have become, you know, in popularity, Megadeth's black album, but just an interesting. It, it made me think about uh, who you knows, know, the role of the been, producer yeah. in that process and the ability to have uh, someone from outside the band come in and really help take the band to a place that maybe they can't see on their own. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's a reason you bring in a guy like a Bob Rock. There's a reason you bring in a Mutt Lang. Uh, it's because they, they see something that you don't. And, yeah. um, and so I just, that that's an interesting take. So, uh, but you should go back and read. Uh, Scott wrote a capstone level thesis here about, <laughs> uh, Megadeth Metallica and then we got into talking about Slayer and live shows and stuff like that so it got a little off but yeah. uh but yeah there's no doubt that this this whether or not this was an attempt to create the black album it certainly did not have the success of the black album um I will argue his point though that no one liked euthanasia when it came out I think going back and looking at it now there's people who maybe will say that they they didn't like it when I was in you know listening to this album when it first came out all of the people in my circle did like it yeah um so yeah i'm trying to see if there's anything else in
0: here Uh, well so so i mean yeah i'd encourage anybody as always to go and look at the uh you know the previous show thread in our facebook group because as we've said many times in this show you know it is to my mind one of the best bloody groups on facebook um just in terms of being able to have those discussions without things turning ugly uh and also in terms of finding new music you know, and exposing yourself to bands that you may not have heard before. We've talked about that before as well. It's, uh, it's a really great group for that. So uh, I'll remind everyone that that is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrashdenout if you're listening and you haven't visited before. A uh, group is open to all. So, you know, by all means, yeah, go and, you know, not just that one. A lot of the threads from past episodes, especially what's interesting to me is when people find
1: Later Podcast. on down the road, yeah,
0: right, and then suddenly sure. I'll I'll get a notification that somebody's commented on like a six-month-old post, totally, dude, because they've only just listened to that episode, and that off, can often re-spark conversation. That's uh, I find that very interesting as well. Um, one thing I wanted to, I've been waiting for a few episodes actually to try and kind of find somewhere to fit this in, um, and it, this is probably about as good as any because it does kind of tie in a little to what you're saying about, you know, bands evolution and changing over time and people fan, people being fans of earlier albums rather than later developments and all that sort of thing. I had, and I can't remember why this came up, but I started thinking about in the nineties, there was a rash of metal bands effectively having midlife crises. Uh Yeah. Metallica being one of them, but they did it in a very different way. Metallica had a midlife crisis that just involved them making, like, some records that, you know, some people, some fans believe they shouldn't have made. But a lot of bands split up or saw uh, people suddenly leaving to go and do side projects. Uh, yep. You know, you had Rob Halford famously going leaving Judas Priest to go and do Fight. Um, Bruce Dickinson left Iron Maiden to do his solo stuff. Uh, and it, And that doesn't happen so much anymore. And I think that's for two reasons one big one small the small reason is simply that i think most bands are much more because the music landscape has changed so much most bands are much more open about uh much more willing to let their members have side projects and realize that it doesn't necessarily detract from you know the main band uh which obviously was more of an issue in the past i think the big reason and the reason i mentioned this is because i i'm really interested to hear other people's opinions on this uh I, When you think about in the 90s, the only, because metal is still such a relatively young genre, in the 90s especially, you know, it was only 20 years old, for heaven's sake. And at that point, Black Sabbath were the only long-lived, out-and-out metal band. Yes, again, ACDC had been around uh, for God knows ever, you know, Motorhead had been around since the late 70s as well. But in terms of bands that you could look at and go, you know, no argument, heavy metal, Black Sabbath was really the only one that had been around since the start, kind of by definition. And I think nobody knew, because they were kind of generis. Sabbath have always really been, you know, just kind of out on their own. Maybe nobody knew if a metal band could actually survive that long and go through the ups and downs of a career and see a revival. Because what we've seen in all sorts of genres recently is bands... That went away for ten or twenty years, suddenly Dude, now doing comeback and revival tours, you know?
1: X just put out an album after twenty-seven years off.
0: Right, right. And but and not it's just been in, getting
1: ridiculous reviews.
0: Right. Not just in rock music though. I mean, we see it in pop music and stuff as well. So what I my this is my, you know, tin pot theory that I've just put together is that when bands' fortunes started to dip in the nineties, because they had been around long enough to go out of fashion, and they felt as if, oh shit, that's it. This is the end. This ship is sinking, going it's yep. never gonna rise again. And so that's why people like Halford and Dickinson and what have you went, oh Christ, you know, let's I better go and do something else and reinvent myself because that's the end of this band. Whereas nowadays, like I say, what we've actually seen is that that's not the case, and there is an appreciation for bands that have been around a long time and are still doing their thing. Again, that's maybe more prevalent in metal than many other genres, but you know, there are, we, we can all think of now a lot of bands that have been around for 20 or 30 years are still basically kind of doing their thing, you know, haven't evolved all that much and people still love them for it because the audience has aged as well. So, I mean, I don't really have a point here. I just think it's an interesting thing to think about why that happened in the nineties so much. And yet, you know, it hasn't happened since in the same way.
1: I mean, maybe because in the, especially in the early nineties, it felt like the landscape had shifted so much that
2: mm, it was, also true, yeah. it,
1: you know, that it was just going to, it was never coming. I, so I agree with you in the sense that I think bands looked at the landscape and were like, our well, era of it. music is over. <laughs> yeah. There's, this is not coming back around again. Like this has completely changed and it changed quickly and it changed in a way, like, it didn't feel like an evolution. It felt like a revolution at that point in time where like things just changed. I like, like we talk about, you know, being at clash of the Titans and see Alice in chains getting booed off the stage, mm-hmm. opening for anthrax and Megadeth and Slayer. And then a year, a year and a half, two years later, they're the headliner yep. at those shows. So that happened so quick. I mean, that that's the memory that I always go back to is literally that Alice in chains gig where it was like, it was not long after that where, Everything flipped upside down, and um, and I think now, as you said, like as we age with some of these bands, I think there's just such an appreciation on our part of bands who continue to stick it out, you know, and and are putting out music that is as good or better than some of the stuff that they've done over the course of their career. Now, um, bands that still can go out and put on a live show at this point in their career, and the amount of respect that that garners now from you know rock and metal fans for bands that have just stuck it out and and are still doing it. Um,
0: Isn't it funny? You know, that's just occurred to me, but isn't it funny how metal specifically metal of all the genres is the one I'm like in any other creative endeavor, it is expected that you get better with age. You know, the experience gives you the wisdom and the knowledge and the skills to produce better work in every other creative field. And also in most music, except metal, where it's almost accepted now that as bands get older, they decline and won't produce stuff as good as when they were young, energetic bands just starting out. And I wonder why that is. Because it's not true either. You know, there are some great bands, as you and I know, who, bands like Testament that we've mentioned many times, who are producing some of their best stuff now. And those guys are all, you know, 50, 60 years old, and they're producing amazing music. Um. So yeah, it's just it's a weird attitude that we have in the metal community, isn't it?
1: Well, it, I, it, does that tie right back to the this idea of rebellion in in rock and metal to begin with, of mm, like maybe. you know not conforming to what the conventional wisdom is, or not conforming to you know what the expectation of you is, and and that just that fighting spirit, I think, of like I mean, for crying out loud, um, you know, you look at bands like Saxon and, and Biff Byford's just dealing with a heart issue right now i don't know if he's had a surgery yet or not but they had to postpone some dates because he had a a heart condition come up um but you look at a band like saxon who you know is out just still killing it i just got their live album it's insane i mean and these are songs that were recorded in the past like seven or eight or nine years of Mm. when these guys are in their late 50s and early 60s and still out there killing it and um it's that spirit it's that energy i think that they that they sort of bring but you're right that is kind of a a unique thing about this type of music, that there is an expectation that the veterans are the experienced, you know, they've seen it, they've done it. And
0: the veterans get the respect, but they get that respect based on what they did 20 or 30 years ago.
1: Right. And there's a lot of healthy respect for longevity now. Yeah. Like for having had a career that you know, has seen some good albums and some bad albums and some mediocre albums, but you're still here and you're still doing it and you're still, and I, I think the the last piece is that you're still putting out some good music nowadays, you know, that you're still, you're still putting new things out there. When you look at a lot of the bands that we listen to, I mean, the stuff they've put out over the past few years has been some of the best stuff they've ever put out.
0: Yeah. Which is crazy. That's what I say. It, it's not true, but it is this commonly held belief that, uh, yeah, you know, young bands, will by definition make better music than they will when you know in twenty or thirty years time and uh yeah it's strange anyway anyway uh let's you know <laughs> let's not spend too much too long on that like i say I do, I'm genuinely interested to hear what people have to say about that um uh but let's get to the album before we do I'll just remind everyone that if you enjoy listening to us talk about all this bullshit uh you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash thrash it out where you can pledge your support for the show and help us keep making this podcast so let's get on to acdc then and why don't you give us a bit of background on the on the band themselves
1: so this is a band that has sold over 200 million albums worldwide 200
0: their million holy 200 shit i missed million. that
1: million in fact <laughs> fuck me I know, right? Uh, just to just to put you in in uh, context with some of their peers, right? So when you when you talk about rock bands, the Beatles have sold over six hundred million albums in their uh, career, and these are, you know you can never trust these numbers completely, but but this is just some of them. Led Zeppelin three hundred million, uh, ACDC two hundred million. So if we're looking at rock bands, you've you've got Beatles, you've got Led Zeppelin, you've got Queen in at around 200 million and then you've got AC/DC at around 200 million so wow. that just gives you an idea of the royalty that they and the rolling stones uh also fall into that category they're right after acdc so just just in terms of like all time considered to be great uh rock bands of all time that's that's some of the company that they're in um aerosmith is like 50 million behind that 150 million. Um, wow. Yeah.
0: And they're considered obviously a huge, you know, again, long lived band.
1: Yeah. U two, 150 million. Uh, let's just go down the list a little They've bit. They've sold here.
0: more records than U two. I did not. Holy crap. <laughs> I did not know that. Jesus. I mean, there's
1: a lot, there's a lot of pop and, and, you know, Bruce Springsteen, 135 million, uh, Metallica, 125 million Fleetwood Mac, 120 million, the Bee Gees, 120 million. So, you mentioned some of those names, and then you look at ACDC, 200 million, right? I wow. mean, that that says a lot. Now, granted, this is a band that's been around for a very long time, but...
0: Uh, yeah, but so they, have a lot of those other bands.
1: Yeah, they are they are royalty. There is no doubt about that. Any any measure of success that you could put out there, ACDC, has, has sort of hit that. Um, not that this is any uh, big measure, but 2003 inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, we know the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a sham, but it's nice that I was going to say, I'm acknowledge- amazed it took that long, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, are you amazed with the Rock and well, Roll Hall okay, of Fame? Well, no. yeah. uh, <laughs>
0: okay, yeah. Maybe I should have said it shouldn't have taken that long. But- that
1: is 100% yeah. correct. So yeah. um, what's interesting about this, and, and this album, uh, let's see if I have the numbers on this album. Uh, in the U.S., seven times platinum, uh, wow. this particular album.
0: So that's what? That's seven million, is it?
1: Yeah, 7 million. Now, uh, and that's just U.S. The following album, Back in Black, 22 million in the U.S., 50 million worldwide. Christ. So the Back in Black album, and really Highway to Hell, too. I mean, these are albums that have sold more than many of the bands that we love have sold in their entire careers.
0: Of every album, yeah. Of absolutely. every
1: album yeah, of worldwide yeah. of all their sales. Um, so, huge, right? But what's interesting about ACDC at this particular point, This this album i don't think is the best acdc album for for me personally uh it is a tragic album in the sense that at this point in time and there's a great article let me see who wrote it here uh written by Mick wall on loudersound.com that talks about the atmosphere leading into this particular album right because this is their uh sixth studio album the album right before this was the live album uh, and then the last studio album before this was Powerage, I think. And so at this particular point in time, ACDC is a band who has had success in a lot of other places, but has not broke in the US yet. Mm. And so uh this great story from Mick Wall and again, loudersound.com, uh it's called ACDC The Making of Highway to Hell. Uh, and and there's a lot of places you can go Wikipedia, there's other articles that talk about this, but he does a really good job of sort of uh you know, articulating what the atmosphere was is that in 1979, you've got um, Atlantic Records basically saying to ACDC, um, "We have to make a change here because you're not getting traction in the U.S." Um, we think of an album like 1976's "Dirty Deeds" as one of their landmark albums. That wasn't even released in the United States until 1981. Didn't even oh, come out. Oh wow! Here. I didn't know that. So, didn't exist in the U.S. Uh, When they did If You Want Blood, You Got It, which was the live album that came out before this album, that was done to try and capture some of the magic that KISS captured with their live album. So basically, a band that wasn't getting a lot of radio airplay, but was an amazing live band, puts out a live album, and then people start to realize what a great band they are. That did not work. This album did not sell in the United States. So Atlantic is saying, we've got to do something. Maybe we should get rid of Bon Scott at this point in time because maybe he's not the singer that's going to break acdc in the u.s and of course they that is not something that they're willing to consider and you know talking to acdc's manager and stuff like that so what they ended up basically settling on was that the guys that had been producing acdc's album which was uh harry vanda and george young the brother of Malcolm and Angus Young.
0: The third brother, yeah.
1: Yep, had been producing their first five albums at this point in time. What kind of was decided, and Harry Vanda was a guitarist in a band called The Easy Beats with George Young, and so that's where the two of them had a relationship from. And so they were the producing uh, crew on ACDC's albums. So they ended up settling on the fact that, you know what, that's where the change is going to have to be made, is in the producer for this album. So... The manager, I think, at the time, went and basically broke the news to George Young that, you know, if you really want your brothers to have success in the States, you're going to have to take a step back and let us bring some someone else in. And so the first guy they bring in to work on this album is Eddie Kramer. And this is a guy who had worked with Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, Kiss. Uh, but right off the bat, the Young brothers, not happy not working with this guy, things not going well.
0: Yeah, there's a quote from uh, Malcolm Young that was in um, a piece in Guitar Engine magazine where he says, Kramer was a bit of a prat. He looked at Bon and said, prat, by the way, is English, or British, I should say, slang for, you know, just idiot. Um, yeah. uh Jerk. And he says he looked at Bon and said to us, can you guys sing? He might have sat behind the knobs for Hendrix, but he's certainly not Hendrix, I can tell you that much.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that was pretty much their attitude in general because acdc is their general attitude is like who the fuck is this guy like just in general you know what i mean they're a band that is they're badasses they're they're you know they are old school get your hands dirty rock and roll in your face and and that they're not fancy and so you know any idea that they needed a fancy producer to come in and help them with this album was like Go F yourself. Like, <laughs> you know, we're not having it. And so the Kramer thing doesn't work out. And um, so the next guy that they end up settling on, it says, after increasingly angry phone calls from Malcolm. Because Malcolm is the driving force of ACDC. Um, even their right, last that- album that was put out after uh the death. Uh, or no, it wasn't put out after the death. It was put out after Malcolm went into treatment for dementia. Yeah, but yeah, it was yeah. using a lot of the riffs that Malcolm had created before. That's Rocker or Bust uh, that came out a few years ago. But he think, was the guy who ran the just band. Just to
0: interrupt you, I think that's important to emphasize for people who maybe don't know, you know, who might enjoy ACDC music but don't know that much about the band is – because I know a lot of people, you know, my, my most of my family, I'm sure, could name half a dozen AC/DC songs, but they would have no idea. They would assume, I think most people assume, that Angus Young writes yep. all the music. And a lot of people don't realize what a driving force musically Malcolm Young was. Yes, Angus, you know, they they wrote together, not saying that Angus didn't write stuff, but Malcolm, because he never sought the spotlight, because Angus was always the one clowning around on stage and that the spotlight was on. And Malcolm was very happy about that by all accounts, happy to sort of be the guy on rhythm guitar in the background. But he had an enormous influence over the musical style of ACDC and wrote some of their most classic riffs.
1: Right. And so Michael Browning, who was the manager at the time, you know, they, they obviously burned right through this Kramer guy, and that didn't work out. So he's getting angry phone calls from Malcolm. So he puts forward um, the idea of another guy that he had in mind for producing this album, Mutt Lang, who had just produced an album by the Boomtown Rats. Yep. Uh, a, and they a, had A great,
0: great album, by the way. I know most of our listeners probably aren't familiar with the Boomtown Rats, but they were a, not quite, punk and not quite post-punk band Uh, you probably know Bob Geldof he was their lead singer and wrote most of their songs and the Boontown Rats at one time were a really really successful band in the UK and they produced some I mean they produced some crap over their over their career but they also produced some really really great albums and yeah I think at least one maybe two of them were with Mutt Lang
1: So ACDC's manager goes to the manager of Mutt Lang and basically says, do you want to work with ACDC? And that guy goes, nope, they don't have a big enough base. Like, we're not interested Mm -hmm. in that. But he keeps at it and eventually gets them to agree that Mutt Lang will produce this album. And there's a great quote from this article where he says, "Uh, at the end of the night, I called Malcolm back and said, it's cool, I've got Mutt Lang. And his response is, who's he? So again, ACDC, they don't give a shit. They'd have no idea who this guy is. And so, See,
0: I read a different quote, and I'm reading from Wikipedia here. In 79, Bon Scott, in an interview, said, uh, about this whole episode, uh, said, three weeks in Miami, and we hadn't written a thing with Kramer, so one day we told him we were going to have a day off and not bother coming in. And this was on a Saturday. So we snuck into the studio, and on that one day we put down six songs, sent the tape to Lang, and said, will you work with us? Which is a very... And that's a contemporary account. Now, obviously, Bon Scott, being a lead singer, being the sort of personality he was, I could well believe that he would bullshit an interviewer. But that seems like, that's you know, if you're going to bullshit about that situation, you'd take the opposite tack and sort of imply that the band was more autonomous rather than, you know, uh, telling a story where the band are basically saying, we need somebody to come in and help us. Please come and work with us.
1: Well, it's interesting because this guy didn't end up staying their manager. Uh, I think he might have gotten fired after this album. But uh, this was the uh, ACDC's manager's account of that situation. So, right. Um, so in any case, Mutt Lang gets brought in, right? And he is, at this point in time, I think 31 years old. And just to give you an idea of like where the guys are at in terms of age right now, Angus is 24 as this album's being put together.
0: Their sixth album and he's only 24 years old. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Bon Scott is the old man at 33, (laughs) um, 32, 33. You've got Malcolm, who is a couple years older than Angus, 26-ish. You've got Cliff Williams, who is the second oldest in the band, at 30. And you've got Phil Rudd, who is 25 at the time. So still very much a young group here. And I think uh, Mutt was 31
0: when he gets right. brought over, so a right? relatively so, young producer as well, yeah,
1: right. And I, I, actually, Bon is probably about thirty-two at the time. So, um, and he comes in, and immediately, you know, these guys don't. He, he's doing stuff, and that's why it reminded me of the Bob Rock stuff. Like he's he's taking them out of their comfort zone. Like there's there's elements where he says to Angus, like I want you to sit next to me and play the guitar solos when we're going through these songs. Like, cause I'm going to give you some pointers and Angus obviously not, <laughs> not yeah, he's feeling like, what like the that. Fuck? <laughs> yeah. He's wants to give uh bond Scott tips on how to be a better singer and Bon Scott, you know, basically it says, who the hell are you? And then quickly finds out that Mutt Lang is a much better singer than him. And so, uh, you know, is teaching him things about like how to breathe and how to, how to sing in a certain way and stuff like that. And that piece is very interesting because vocally on this album, Mutlang provides a lot of background vocals, which if you listen to previous ACDC albums, I love their sort of anthemic background vocals that they do, but they're thin, right? And what right. you feel Right, well, they didn't
0: have a lot of vo- vocal melody. Yes. Specifically, like harmony, sorry, I should say, uh, before this album. And I think that made a huge- Talk it, about the, you know, the influence of producer that made a huge difference on this album. A
1: humongous difference. Like, that- might be the difference uh, you know, in that way there's, there is a melody uh, I would say melody and groove are the two things that, that uh, come into focus on this album in a way that they have not been previously to this point in ACDC's career. Um. So, so yeah, so there's some growing pains around that kind of stuff, but Mutt Lang comes in and really helps them focus what they were doing in a way that just, locked their sound in in a way that it hadn't before and that that could be for better or for worse because if you listen to stuff like um uh powerage or or if you listen to high voltage and stuff like that like one of the things i love about bond scott era acdc is the sheer power of it just the 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 cacophony the wall of sound that they create when the songs sort of hit their crescendo and just the the borderline out of control feel to a lot of their music and, and it's unpolished. The productions, you know, are unpolished. The, the, what you're hearing is not the one best take of a song. It might be a, it might be a pretty good take of a song. Like you're not, there wasn't an emphasis on being perfect because that's not who they were as a band. Yeah. And then Mutt Lang comes into the picture and that is who Mutt Lang is. It is about perfection. It is about getting the best take. It is about, um, and and just to put a little context around Mutt Lang's success, and I know we talked about him when we talked about Def Leppard, and we will mention Def Leppard in here for sure. Um, He's 31 at this point in time, but, from, but starting with this album from ACDC, and remember, he had success before he came to this album. Over a period of eight years, I'm going to run you through some of the albums that Mutt Lang produced. He produces Highway to Hell, which hits seven times platinum in the United States. He produces Back in Black, which the consistency between of him between those two albums cannot be overstated mm. um, when when they bring Brian Johnson into the band and then go on to make their most popular album of all time. Uh, 22 times platinum in the U.S., 50 million worldwide. He in, that was in 1980. 1981, Foreigner 4. Seven times platinum. 1981, High and Dry, three times platinum from Def Leppard. Uh, 1981, For Those About to Rock from ACDC, four times platinum. 1983, Def Leppard Pyromania, seven times platinum. 1984, Heartbeat City from The Cars, four times platinum. 1987, Hysteria from Def Leppard, 12 times platinum. That is eight years, eight albums. 66 million plus copies in the United States alone.
0: That's not that, a bad decade of work, is it?
1: <laughs> I mean <laughs> holy shit, right? I mean this guy and when you look at some, when you look at those albums, I mean those are landmark albums from some
0: from all of those bands, yeah. Legendary I bands. I think it's also interesting how at least, you know, AC/DC and Def Leppard went back to him. You know, for when, sure. And obviously, you, when you make albums that are that successful, there's going to be pressure from the record company to say, "Hey, let's you know get get the band back together, as it were, literally with the same producer, you know, and do the same thing all over again." That's what record companies want, of course. But nevertheless, you know, the band's still got to be on board with it. And uh yeah, the fact that he worked, kept working with those and two bands that were focused on commercial success, you know, much as we will talk. Certainly, I'm sure, about the rawness of ACDC. They were still a band that wanted to be successful. You know, they wanted to play to big crowds and sell lots of records. And obviously, we all know that Def Leppard, from the word go, (laughs) you know, always wanted to be one of the biggest bands in the world. And certainly, I don't think anybody could accuse Foreigner of not wanting to be commercially successful either. So I think it's interesting that bands like that would keep going back to him, knowing they would get these results.
1: Right. And, well, and if you're ACDC, right, but when you, when you, I mean, I'm sure there was also the fact that they had just lost Bon Scott, right? And so having a familiar sure, yeah. entity in the studio with them probably made a lot of sense to them, too. But also knowing this is an album that we're going to try and go out there with a brand new singer after we just had our biggest album. Mm. And are people going to even accept that, right? So. Yeah, so which makes this album all the more fascinating, right? So so in a lot of ways, this album becomes the culmination of everything that ACDC have done to this point, and a real turning point for them, especially in the U.S. in terms of their uh, breaking into the mainstream in the U.S. And so that's why it's such a crazy album to talk about. Also, it was released on July 27, 1979. This is the 40th anniversary of that album. This wow. year, 40. 40. Four, zero, 4 decades, for tell you 40 what, years.
0: Sounds fucking good for a 40 year old album, doesn't it? Like, just the, I the, mean, the, the sonic quality of it is really impressive.
1: Which, again, uh, Mutt Lang. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he had produced, by the way, he had produced, I, I counted through, and my count might be off by one or two. He had produced more than 25 albums by the time he got to ACDC.
0: Wow, at 31.
1: Jesus. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So, your lineup for this album obviously we've talked about Bon Scott you know Angus you know Malcolm Cliff Williams on bass maybe one of the most underrated bass players of all time and Phil Rudd on drums arguably one of the most underrated drummers of all time
0: right Well, so, and i think in the case of Phil Rudd it's that old thing about he, he doesn't get the plaudits because he's not, it's like ringo doesn't get the plaudits because he's just not flashy dude. you know he he's the absolute opposite of a flashy drummer but god damn can he hold down a beat
1: uh, not only hold down a beat, but if you want to show an aspiring drummer how to serve a song with mm. your playing, damn, does this guy – I mean, the the places where he crashes, the cymbals, the places – where just how he introduces a song, where he – how he comes out of a chorus back into the riff, uh, you know, uh, of the main rhythm, like – it's one of those things, and I hope that people got this as they went back and listened to this album. It's one of those things where you start listening to this album and you get a couple of listens in, and you start to hear what is happening with Cliff Williams' bass lines mm-hmm. that at first just seemed super, super simple and probably, you know, maybe all very similar. And then you start to hear what Phil's doing on the drums there. Like it really starts to come out. And then you realize what an amazing rhythm section can do for a band. And these guys are a machine of a rhythm section. Like, and, and then you have who many would say is the greatest rhythm guitarist in the history of rock and roll, Malcolm Young, um, all of which allows Angus and Bond. You know, Bond bon Scott vocally is like Angus Young on guitar. He's a caged animal. And so when you have a rhythm section that holds it down and provides the perfect canvas for you to paint on. Like, that's to me what makes ACDC so special, is that Angus doesn't get to be Angus without Malcolm and Cliff and Phil. Mm-hmm. Bon Scott doesn't get to be Bon Scott. And uh, you can see, like, br- to me, Brian Johnson, when he comes into the band, is a more traditional singer. He, f- he follows more within the rhythm of a song. Than Bon Scott does. Bon Scott has a little Ronnie James Dio in him, in the sense that he'll he'll add little flourishes. He's not always on time. He's you know he's he's playing within the song, but sometimes just barely, you know with his uh, with his vocal approach and stuff like that, which I love because to me, when Bon Scott sings, it sings like you're hearing this version of that song, and it's the only time you're ever going to hear it. Because the next time he sings this song, it's going to be a little bit different. It could be a different. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's always the impression that I get from Bon Scott. And that's also the impression that I get from just about every solo that Angus plays. He is playing the solo as it comes to him right now in this song. And if you play it again tomorrow, it's going to be a different solo.
0: I um, think what's, what's interesting, actually, about Bon Scott's vocals, I'm, I should say straight up that I'm not the biggest fan of Bon Scott's vocals, or of mm-hmm. Brian Johnson's, actually. Um, they do... I do find them a bit wearing after a while. They do grate on me a little bit, but I will also say that they go perfectly for this band. I cannot imagine, how could anybody imagine ACDC without that style of vocal? But what I find interesting about Bon Scott's uh, vocals on this album, especially, is that almost none of the melodies in, and we'll talk more about this stuff as we go through the tracks, but almost none of the melodies in these songs during the verses have anything to do with the guitar riff, other than you know being more or less in the same key. But that aside, they have almost nothing to do with the riffs of the verse. But when the chorus kicks in, everything comes together, and that's what gives this band such power in their choruses, is that it feels like that is when everything locks in as a unit and they're all driving forward towards the same destination. Whereas during the verses, it's much more... Uh, disparate. And that's not to say that it doesn't work. It absolutely does work. But it doesn't feel quite as cohesive. And then, yeah, when you get the chorus, suddenly, bang, that's, every, you know, all guns blazing, everybody moving in the same direction.
1: And that is kind of the magic of this band is that there are these uh, elements that are sort of not aligned that just come together at these moments. And the way that they tend to come together is in a way that just explodes. Yeah, And so it feels... I feel like if anyone else was playing these songs, they wouldn't be as heavy. They're kind of a band that is like heavier than the music. Uh, it, almost like it, as it is on paper, has a right to be, you know what I mean? Well, but it's just the A the lot of way- that,
0: I think, has to do with the guitar tones. Yeah, I read several sure, pieces yeah. while researching this. I read several pieces from guitarists and producers saying like, yeah, nobody can sound like Malcolm and Angus there is just something about the the guitars they use the equipment they use and the way they play in the same way that nobody no other drummer sounds like john bonham and it's not yep. cuz john bonham had magical drum skins or something it's just the way he played and that to an extent is true of the young brothers as well
1: absolutely and i mean just the way that chords are struck you know just the the it, it's just it's so awesome there's a great video out there of scott Ian talking about like why malcolm young is the greatest guitar player like and just like oh, professing his love for him um it's great there's a there's a lot of good stuff out there about people basically talking about how underrated that that malcolm was um i'm trying to see if there's anything else that we want to hit on before we get well, into the actual album talking about oh, well,
0: videos i know you wanted to talk about a video that you pointed me to uh, to watch about the bass work on this album
1: well and I, I think the, some of the songs that they're talking about might even be from uh Dirty Deeds uh as well. But basically there was a video and we could put a link to it in the show notes where um a couple of bass players were basically saying here's why Cliff Williams is one of the most <laughs> underrated bass players of all times because he would do things in a song that were just uh he'd play a little bit higher than the main riff or he'd play a little bit lower than the main riff and he would uh he would be doing things that just accentuated the song that if you were just trying to play along with an ACDC song, you'd probably miss and you would, you would probably just like, because most of the times the bass is just following the the main rhythm. And so they kind of broke down a couple of ACDC songs and showed like, here's where he's doing something different that when you go back and listen to it, you'll notice it gives it an extra layer of depth or you notice that it makes the sound a little bit more powerful because of the, of the note he's hitting here, which most people would hit this note here. And um, if you're a bass player, then you, uh, I'm sure you'll love it because there's a, there's, they literally go into like what notes are being played and what chords are being played. Um, and they show it on guitar and bass and those things. But it, to me, what stood out from that video was it was the whole thing of like, if you just look a little bit deeper with ACDC, there's more going on under the hood than it seems when you're listening to an ACDC song on the radio.
0: Right. Well, and small things make a huge difference as well, Mm -hmm. because, you know, this is these band, these songs are very simple. This is a band that doesn't do complex, you know, uh, like fret wanking, widdly, widdly guitar stuff. Um, And so it sounds very, very simple. But the thing about that is there's nowhere to hide. You've got to get it right. If anything goes wrong you know, it's just there hanging out for all to see. And so the tiniest little thing, like, as you said, the way Cliff Williams plays the bass, or rather the notes he chooses, not necessarily the way he plays the bass, because the way he plays it is very traditional, but the notes he chooses to play to complement the riffs, the guitar riffs, make a huge difference because there isn't, what else is there? There's two guitars, a bass, and drums. There are, you know, there's no crazy effects. There's no keyboards. There's no weird pedals or anything going on and there's no like massively complex 10 million notes a minute to hide anything it's all just there plain for everyone to hear so yeah like i said there's nowhere to hide and tiny things make a huge difference
1: yeah and and that's like the magic of acdc to go back to what you were talking about about how the elements come together like the way they pull a song together and they lock in a groove or they Uh, explode into a solo to me is like no one else. Like they're, they just, they there's these emotional beats to ACDC songs that are just like so amazing. And the cool thing was like for, for Mutt Lang, they got Mutt Lang at a time where the technology had not gotten too advanced yet because when, as Mutt Lang went on and you can look at Def Leppard's hysteria as Mm. the shining example of that, when the technology got to a point that you could really start dialing things to where people's vocals almost sounded like a synthesizer in the studio. That's what he did with Hysteria. Like, that thing is the most produced album ever. Like, if you go back and listen to well, it... Well, that's it, the
0: it, common criticism of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that Well, right,
1: and yeah. that's Mutt Lange. So, <laughs> but then you look at, he also produced High and Dry, right? So, mm-hmm. at this point in his career, he was working with what he had, and that, to me, this is the best era of Mutt Lang's career uh, for rock and roll and stuff like that. It's because it still had the raw elements of that music because he got to a point where he sort of became, I think he became his own worst enemy and started to produce some of the energy out of uh, the rock music that he was really. sort of working Rather with. than and capturing
2: so, the energy, trying to create it in the studio. It, yes. yeah.
1: Whereas I feel like what he did here was it's almost like looking through a microscope and you're dialing to see which lens is going to give you the clearest vision. And I felt like what he did with ACDC here is he said, look, you guys have this live this sort of played live to tape feel to everything that you do. Let's just make it the best take, you know, like let's, let's make it the best take. Let's lift the vocals a little bit. Let's lock in that groove as much as we possibly can and just uh, give it, without sacrificing much power, give it a little bit more groove and a little bit more feel and, you're going to be there. And so I just feel like what he did on this album with them is just help them bring that into laser focus so that what you have with this album overall is an album that still has the energy of an ACDC album, but also has the polish of a just sonically.
0: The sonic clarity. I think clarity yes. is the, is the issue. You know, this is another one where you can hear every instrument uh, and every aspect of every instrument, you know, for good or ill.
1: Yes hundred percent so so you know i think he really this was a case where he really did them a service by coming in here and uh bringing out just an amazing studio album from this band
0: yeah absolutely all right this is going to end up another two and a half hour episode (laughs) if we're not if we don't move on to the actual tracks (laughs) sometime soon although you know wouldn't be the worst thing so let us get into the album itself then and uh what is it? So just the fact, 1979, 10 songs, 42 minutes, as we've said before, you know, perfectly acceptable length for a rock album. Doesn't outstay its welcome by any means. Um, most of the songs, I think, are under like four minutes, aren't they? Uh, yeah. You know, some of them are very short. There's only a couple of...
1: You had a couple that hit five, five you know, five and four and a half minutes. Minutes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Nothing excessively long at all. Um, they don't
1: beat around the bush, Anthony. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. <laughs> very good. Very good. But not yet. let's start instead obviously enough with track one title track highway to hell
1: I mean, is there a more perfect opening to a song?
0: Well, you could argue Back in Black. But yeah, I mean, it's it's between those two, isn't it?
1: What's interesting, I'm glad you brought up Back in Black, because one of the things that I find fascinating about the intro to this song is that it starts with just guitar, then come the drums. It's not until 50 seconds into the song that you even hear one note from the bass. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Back in Black, it is bant and it is uh, drums, bass, guitar, literally That's from true. the first note. That
0: is true, yeah. Um, but but I, here you don't get the bass. I don't think you even get the rhythm guitar either until the first chorus.
1: Right. You're just getting dan 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 out, and then the drums come in, and then Bond comes in. And then as you build up to the chorus, you get that first note of the bass. And the thing about it is like, this is one of those little magical, wonderful things for, uh, of ACDC is that you're already locked into the groove of the song, and then the heft comes in at 50 seconds when the bass finally and the song just explodes into the chorus, right? And of course, you know, the, the thing that you'll notice about uh, the choruses throughout the album, we already mentioned this, is that Mutt Lang is singing along with the choruses. And so there is a layer of melody here that you, are not usually getting from ACDC, and it makes all the difference in the world.
0: Yeah. I mean, th- there's a reason this is one of their most popular and best known songs. It is, or, you know, quintessential ACDC. It's a classic riff, which we yeah. are going to be saying a lot <laughs> about a lot I mean, of yes. songs on this album, but it is an absolutely classic riff that, you know, it's one of those riffs that the minute you hear it, you only need to hear that first, and you're like, oh, I know what that is. And it's literally just a guitar, but you know instantly what song it is. You know, you can tell who's playing. Um, and it's also, it has a great chorus, which is the other thing that, yeah, as I said, that ACDC do really well. But yes, Mutt Lang allowed them, it seems it was him anyway, basically allowed them to take their choruses to the next level. And they are so good at choruses that there's a few songs on this album that don't have the best chorus but the m- majority of songs on here all have fantastic choruses a lot of them are single on choruses you know that you can really belt out uh, driving along in the car or whatever and i'm sure many people do um and yes they are these explosive choruses where all the instruments as we said come together and are all moving in the same direction in and that's where they do the so the much song
1: with so little right that's yeah. where they because as you said like there's nowhere to hide but when they they're they're kind of like a for most of the band i wouldn't say angus necessarily but for for the rhythm section of this band they're like a uh exercise in efficiency yeah like they're like just where they emphasize and where they de-emphasize and where they let one instrument stand out and where they bring everybody to the forefront like All of that sort of uh, back and forth stuff is like, that's where the complexity of ACDC songs come in. Because as you said, like they're playing a lot of the same chords over and over again, right? There's a lot of different ways to play this same type of song. But it's those little choices that they make that make things sort of stand out. Um, The first time you like Bon Scott's voice, you know, no stop signs. The way he delivers that line, who sings like that?
0: Yeah, yeah, nobody. You know what I mean?
1: It's, 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 it's gravel and grit, but also like just mania and kind of high pitched and yes. Yeah, and like yeah. just, just this, uh, you know, kind of strung out, um, it, it barely contained. And to me, like that's, he is, he sings the way that Angus plays guitar. And so mm. when you have the two of them there together, it's just like, but again, emphasizing one at a time it's just like one at a time they're jumping off that that rock solid rhythm that the rest of the band is providing and so uh, but this is a great example as you said of like an ACDC song where you, when they bring it all together it just feels so much heavier than what you're getting during the main rhythm
0: well and that's partly because the main rhythm already sounds heavy yep. you know part of the the reason that the bass coming in for the chorus has such an incredible effect on this song is because Because of the sound, and again, you know, the way they play and what have you, uh, and the overdrive and distortion types that they use, which apparently were very, very simplistic, uh, I read, you know, for both of the Young Brothers, that's already pretty heavy. That combined with the drums and Bond's vocals is already, you know, a lot heavier and louder than a lot of bands that play this kind of music. And especially at the time, that's something we haven't really talked about, but... It's important to remember, this album is from 1979. I know, man. You know, it was very difficult to get stuff that sounded this heavy. And I mean, sonically heavy. Obviously, you know, you had Black Sabbath with doing all their Doom thing and what have you. But in terms of just actual sonic heaviness, it was very difficult to get something that sounded this heavy while also uh, being clean in 1979 you know that was and that is down to yeah how the young brothers played and obviously some of the production as well um and as a result th- this is why when we were talking about it last time i said you know but the argument that acdc are a heavy metal band you've got to take it in context of course they were at the time there weren't many bands as heavy as this that sounded as heavy you know yes they may not be doing uh songs about uh wizards and monsters or you know about uh, heavy metal demons and fire or i don't know whatever you want to say. but they the sound was absolutely regarded at the time as heavy metal there's no question about that and part of that is down to just how fucking loud and heavy those guitars sounded even before the bass comes in and then when the bass does come in you think oh shit there's no i have there's been no bass right. on this yet
1: that, that's exactly you're like whoa holy crap i didn't even like you didn't, didn't even know realize that was missing yeah yeah and then and then on top of that, like the interplay of the main riff and the heft of the snare drum of uh Phil Rudd, right? Yep. So you've got banana, boom, ban, like just the the way the drums and the and the guitar play off one another in the beginning of that song provides a, a lot of that heft. And, and just in general about ACDC, like is there a better band to bang your head and throw your fist in the air to? I mean, oh, they, listen, don't, man they man, provide yeah. Yeah. you the perfect rhythm for headbanging and throwing your fist in the air. Like, the, so there, like, it's just, it's just perfect. So yeah. um
0: there is a reason why this band were, you know, became so popular and have remained so popular. And it's songs like this that are responsible. Yeah.
1: And again, a great solo by Angus here. I feel like it's very much within the song, whereas some of his solos are just completely just falls out yeah. crazy <laughs> which i absolutely adore but this one here i think this was the one where uh mutt Lang actually had him sit down next to him and play the solo as they were listening to this song so there's a he stays within the song for the most part here which uh but it's a great solo and there's a great pick slide um in this song it's it's awesome yes. and then uh when they get to like after the solo The cymbal crashes and just that wall of sound where the chorus is going and Angus is, you know, playing notes on top of the main rhythm and everything is all together. Like, it is this just tidal wave of sound. Um, And then, of course, they, you know, they end like many ACDC songs then where they all like it's the last song of the night at the bar.
0: Right, you know, almost they, every song ends that same uh, way, doesn't 100%, it? hundred yeah? percent, dude. Because they're all closers. <laughs> Motorhead did that a lot as well. Yeah, <laughs> they're
1: all closers, uh, yeah. which is is so great. But w- one of the notes that I made here is that uh, I'm sure that Anthony loves ACDC because they end songs. Yes, like they.
0: <laughs> I did note that down. Yeah, <laughs> they don't play off into
1: obscurity. They end songs. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, as an as an opener to an album, boy oh boy this is one of the all-time greats to open an album
0: yeah well and just to briefly talk about that whole business of songs ending i think that probably as much as anything harks back to the fact that they were such a live band you know and cut yeah. their teeth playing live and their endless touring the whole thing about highway to hell is, is supposedly a metaphor it's about for the, being on the road fact that they've been on the road forever yeah um and you know when you play live you can't fade out yeah <laughs> You, can, right. you can't do that Well maybe you can now but you certainly couldn't in the 70s you know it just wasn't a thing so every song had to have an ending and I feel that's probably why most of these songs have got endings that sound like the last song of the gig because that is what they were yep alright move on then to track 2 Girls Got Rhythm
1: tempo just a little bit and go from a song that was not super bass driven to a song that is very much bass driven um you still get the you know the uh the quick opening guitar riff because that's how acdc likes to introduce a song to you but it locks in very quickly to the rhythm it's super tight and it's got a great groove to it um this song i really really i think this is a great uh build off of the first song yeah the first song was a slower tempo crushing super heavy anthemic this one is a little bit quicker there's the bass has a lot more to do in this song um it's a nice pickup
0: yeah it it is uh definitely as you say the tempo gets faster it's a little bit more involved this is one where you can really hear how the rhythm guitar and bass are not just following Angus's lead. You know, they're oh lay- my god! Yes, laying that foundation for him to then riff over. Um, you can hear that especially actually in the pre-chorus. There is um, uh, there is a bit where in the pre-chorus towards the end of each line, Malcolm is playing these sort of really high, well not really high, but he's playing these high, maybe a note or two higher, sort of sharp emphasis chords under Angus. They're not all that audible. You know, you could miss them the first few times you listen but what but you you subconsciously what they do is they add emphasis to the end of those lines yep. um and you if you're listening for them you can certainly hear them and pick them out say they're not even all that loud but they're just enough to add a bit of emphasis and a bit of dynamics and as you said the complexity with these songs if there is any is in the 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 arrangement and the dynamics of the song it's not in the riffs we know that but it is in how they are built and put together as songs, and that is, you know, a masterclass. Um, f- for instance, it's <laughs> you may not realize until you sort of think about it, this whole song is one riff. This yep. the, the riff in this song does not change at all, not even during the middle eight, not during the verse, not during the chorus, not during the middle eight and solo. It is all one riff. The only thing that changes is the volume and the emphasis and the arrangement around that riff. And when you can build a four minute song out of, or three and a half minute, whatever, uh, out of a single riff, and at first glance you don't even realize that it's a single riff, that's impressive. That is damn good songwriting.
1: Well, and when the solo is the heaviest part of the song, you know, and then what happens during the solo is as the solo progresses, Phil Rudd starts hammering on the cymbals just crashing
0: the drums get really heavy don't they yeah
1: they just get it just takes it up a whole his solo was already the heaviest part of the song and then the cymbals just freaking bring it and then they lock right back into that groove and uh, but but also the groove speeds up a little bit towards the end of the song uh it's so good dude it's so like the, the the tempo control that they have and how uh how that rhythm section just just absolutely kills it is is so great. So this is like a fun, this is three minutes, 24 seconds. This is like a fun, up-tempo, pick it up from the first song. Um, you know, somebody, I think it was Andy, who's like, I can't wait to see what analysis Brian does of the lyrics on this album.
0: Yeah, yeah. we haven't really talked about those yet. Yeah, uh,
1: <laughs> the first song was about, uh, so basically, first song is about being on tour. Uh, last song is about being a night stalker every song in between is about banging yeah that's that's basically what you have on this record so it's bookended by uh songs that have a little bit more serious uh you know connotation to them everything else is very much sort of uh tongue-in-cheek uh sex drugs rock and roll really sex and rock and roll that's yeah, that's ma- the primary
0: uh, mainly sex let's be honest yeah yes yeah, yeah, <laughs> mainly sex
2: <laughs> uh yeah but absolutely. i'm reminded
0: of you know we've said this before about motorhead let me three themes you know be, being in a band and life on the road, uh, war and sex. And that was basically every single motorhead song is about one of those three things. And it's kind of like that here, except without the war.
1: <laughs> yeah. You just replace war with, uh, More rock and roll. So, so yeah. So they write songs about, uh, what rock and roll is. They write songs about sex and they write songs about being in a band. That's, yeah. that's basically it. <laughs> um, which, you know, again, that's, that simplicity in that, you know, how many ways can we tackle the same sort of stuff? I think is what makes a lot of the magic. So,
2: um, yeah,
0: al- although it does towards the end of the album, a couple of it, a couple of the tracks I think do get a bit tiresome for that reason because it's just like, oh God, are we really going to talk about this again? Um, now, you know, let's be honest, apart from the choruses, most people probably don't pay any attention to the lyrics of an ACDC song anyway. So it's not a big knock, but it is something where. Yeah, you know, if you're listening to it over and over, as we've been, it can get a bit tiring after a while. You're like, come on, lay off, tipped.
1: <laughs> I also read somewhere, though, that Bond's lyrics, on, and again, a lot of their songs were about this, but that there, were, there was a choice to make most of the lyrics on this album more lighthearted because he had felt like on the previous studio album they were a little bit more serious. I read he. that as well. Yeah. You wanted this and to be so, more
0: of a party album.
1: Yeah. And so, uh, and I think you feel that cause it, to me, like the, the one thing that these guys are serious about is the actual music.
2: Oh like yeah. They are, yeah, yeah.
1: they are, a, a you know, punch you in the mouth, blue collar rock and roll band, but they're just a bunch of dudes who like to party and, you know, and have a good time. And so you definitely, uh, you definitely get that. It's almost like the, template for what hair metal would take to the extreme in you know in the 80s as far as like subject matter you know
0: yeah (laughs) um moving on then so track three is walk all over you
1: I love the drums as they, they have sort of almost like this falling effect that you have when, um, first of all, they they do uh, cymbal crash and bass when they strike a chord at the intro of the song. But then there's this, you know, you everything, the, the guitars are sort of reverberating in the background and you just have like, the, you know, Phil's drums going around the tom and the snare in between them hitting these notes as they're sort of introducing the song to you, which is really cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's almost a it's almost do-me kind of start, this, yeah. isn't it? If you listen to it at first and you think, like, what is this? I mean, obviously, we all know because everybody knows this album, but I was trying to listen to each of these as if I was hearing it for the first time when I was making yep. my notes. And yeah, if you were hearing it for the first time, you might think, oh, this is going to be very different to the rest of the album. And, and then, of course, it's not. <laughs> it's, no, but you know, it turns it out it to be the highest... It winds up being an ACDC song after all. Um, but it's interesting that it starts in that way, and it does really build up, as you say.
1: And the tempo is even faster than the last song, when it kicks into gear, finally. During and the so verses, sort of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so you sort of have this uh, one, two, three effect of, like, build, 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 you know, um, I-, I feel like the-, the
0: bass is the hero on this track, actually. Oh my god, are you kidding it really me? It's, it's an of, amazing bass line. It has line. this galloping feel to it, and that's all down to the bass.
1: Well, and it's just the extra note in you know, like instead of he could just go boom, 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 boom he's not. He's dun 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 You know, so he's it just does. It gives it this galloping um feel to it. And the song itself feels like it's uh, you know, it's on one of those mountain roads and it's just careening around the corner at, with the danger of falling off the side of the cliff, like with, with the whole tempo of the song, because the, the chords are, they're just being, they're reverberating. They're just hammering the chord and letting it ring out and hammering the chord and letting it ring out. And so it has this, um, even though it is very polished, it has this almost unpolished feel to it that is, uh, it's really great. Like it's yeah, just it's just it got a feels, great feel to it. It's one of it. those
0: songs that feels like it could go out of control at, at yes. any moment. Uh even though obviously it's not going to. Um you know, and everything is very actually very tightly controlled, but yeah, it it feels like it's not. Um and some blistering solos on their track. Oh my as well, god. Actually. And
1: it, it, the that's the best part is to me, the best AC DC songs feel like the rest of the band is physically restraining Angus for most of the song, <laughs> yeah. like that they are literally they holding him back <laughs> and then he just breaks free during the solos and he's just a wild maniac. And watching them live, like even the dudes in his mid-60s now, that is still who he is. Oh, yeah. And I will yeah, never yeah. forget. I mean, I didn't mention at the top of the show, but ACDC was the first concert I ever went to. and oh, it Oh, shit. The- I don't
0: think I knew that. Wow. It
1: was the blow up your video tour. And so there was a giant missile that rose out of the middle of the stage. And as they were playing Heat Seeker, Angus kicked the door open to the missile and just hits the stage doing his, you know, trot as he's playing in his schoolboy outfit. And I'd never seen anything so amazing in my entire life. Like that <laughs> that cemented my love for ACDC as a band was just the this absolute maniac. That like no one, no one is like, he's like Elvis on guitar, right? I mean, he's, he's like, he's just got this way about him that is uh, amazing. Yeah, nobody
0: yeah, plays like Angus, yeah.
1: Nobody. And, and it, it feels like it's all feel. Like it feels like he's just, he just filled right, up his energy right. over the course of that song. And then it's time to hit that solo and it's just bam. And he's just playing, he's literally channeling the rock gods as he's just playing everything that comes to his head at that particular point in time um it's like the opposite of like a megadeth right right it's right. like the opposite of this like
0: even though composed, he is a very uh, clearly 100%. a very technically accomplished guitarist yeah
1: but and you might say the thing that is most accomplished of him is that he can make well thought out solos feel like he is improvising them on the fly and that because it fe- literally it just feels like he's channeling the energy of that song into that solo as he's playing it right then and there for the very first time. Um, and I love that.
0: So, so that's really interesting because one of the notes I'd made, one of the things I wanted to talk about in the context of this song is the chorus here is much more complex than you might realize because it's quite slow and because you can sing along to it and what have you you know, it feels fairly simple, but it's actually fairly complex. It only has three full lines of chorus music. Now as we know, you know western rock music is all based around four. Everything that happens in you know can be is divisible by four. Four lines or eight lines or 12 lines or whatever. Everything is around four and then the fourth leads into the next set of four. But this chorus only has three full lines of chorus music. But because of Scott's vocal timing, it feels like a full four lines. It leaves half a line for that sort of, you know, bashing away on the guitar and cymbals to finish it. And it actually starts half a line before the guitar riff of the chorus does. And it's, again, you know, no, this is not rocket science. It's not Megadeth. But it is, it's deceptively simple. It takes a lot of thought to sound this thoughtless, if that makes any sense.
1: (laughs) Well, it's like, like when people say, like, how does a band make a career out of playing the same song over and over and over again, right? Like, how does a band last this long Why is ACDC so popular? Why have they lasted this many years? It's that right there.
0: Yeah. Well, it's the same. It's the old arguments about, you know, when people complain that heavy metal was just noise, and we're all like, no, it's not. And that's because you've got to approach it in that like It's not the same song over and over again. They all have the same kind of feel and attitude, sure, but it's not the same. And that's where that sort of, you know, uh, complexity and where that dedicated thought arises there was um uh, on the tabletop genesis podcast a while ago i remember hearing somebody uh make a great comparison and i think it might be made by a journalist first but uh oh no it was a music teacher it was somebody's music teacher who pointed out that yes the the prog band yes Played really simple stuff, but made it sound really complicated. Whereas Genesis played really complicated stuff, but made it sound really simple. And that's kind of the, you know, the sort of defining musical difference between those two bands. And I think that's really applicable here. ACDC is one of those bands that, yes, what they're playing, like I say, it's not technically difficult, but it is extremely well crafted and has way more thought behind it than. If you're just listening to it on the radio in your car or whatever, then you might realize.
1: And it gives everyone something to to come here for, right? So if you're if you're in, if you're a vocalist and and maybe you don't like Bonds, um, you know his voice just in general, but you can listen to what he's doing and mm. his sort of approach to the songs and how he does things like he's doing on this song. Uh, there's something there for you if you're a lead guitar player and you just want to hear someone like Angus who's just doing his thing on each one of these songs. If you're a rhythm guitar player and you want to hear one of the greatest rhythm guitar players of all time, lock it down on every single song, that's here for you. If you're a drummer and you want to learn how to control the tempo of a song and play within a song and serve the song, like that's here for you. And If you want to hear a, a bass player who uh, picks his spots and knows exactly when to add something to a song and when to lay back, like all of that stuff is here for you. They're like a they're like a music lesson in an album. <laughs> like <Right. laughs> like you, you know what I mean? It's like start with ACDC. If you're interested in playing rock or metal, start here and then learn because when the the mastery of the basics that these guys have is just un it's it's unparalleled.
0: Well the irony is that you know what would not what would really happen there is you'd start with A C D C, you move on to somebody like Metallica or Megadeth or Iron Maiden, even. Uh, and then you eventually come back round yep. to ACDC because, of course, as we all know, you know, the older you get, the more you realize how much value there is in those fundamental basics. Foundations,
1: man. Foundations. Yeah,
0: so, so important. Um, let's move on then to track four, Touch Too Much.
1: is the song that became Def Leppard?
0: Uh, Do you know, I'm not... That might be right. I kind of hope it isn't, in a way, because I really like this song. (laughs) Yeah. This is one of my favorite songs of the album. That's why
1: you're a a Def Leppard fan. (laughs) Uh, So after you listen to this song, pause this episode and go back and listen to our High and Dry episode, because this song and there is an article somewhere where joe elliott talks about how this was his favorite song on the album and then of course mutt lang went on to produce high and dry after Mm. this album uh and there are elements of this song that shaped the entire sound of def leppard on the high and dry album which this is maybe my favorite song on this album i adore this song this is one of my favorite acdc songs of all time um I love everything about it. I love the way that it comes in, how it just starts uh, very simply, and then Bond starts singing, and then you get that second layer of rhythm. Uh, I love the turn in between each line of the verse. Uh, I love when the chords get sharp as they start to build toward the chorus, and then the way that the chorus comes in and just crashes all of that is so freaking good
0: yeah it's one of, i don't know whether i'd say it is my favorite but it's certainly up there it's certainly in the top three of the album um yeah the opening i mean the opening as you say is very very simple <laughs> I was the funny thing that struck me was like couldn't don't you think that this opening could also be any ZZ Top song that you care to name? Yes. <laughs> could absolutely. It very easily be like you know that sort of the the 80s era of ZZ Top I mean you know when they had stuff like Eliminator or might have. Um the bass talking about the bass again on this one the bass on this song interestingly during the chorus uh, verse rather follows Angus doesn't follow Malcolm it's not playing the same as the rhythm guitar it's following Angus's uh, higher lead playing, which I think is yep. really a really interesting choice. And another thing, again, that, you know, adds to that sort of complexity within the simplicity. Um, and then that chorus, that chorus is just so, it's so killer, good. Right? It blows up and it has those combined stop starts on the guitars and cymbals. It's just, it's fantastic. It's one of the best choruses they've ever written. Um, yep. Absolutely Couldn't agree brilliant. more. And Bon Scott's, I mean, you know, like I said, I'm not the biggest fan of his voice, but on this song, and especially on that chorus, he absolutely nails it. It just sounds so good.
1: So the Def Leppard parts in this song, when in the chorus, right after they sing Touch Too Much and it goes, mm-hmm. that is that turn is a Def Leppard uh, turn oh, really? for sure. Oh my God, it's all over uh, High and Dry. And then at the very end of the solo, where it goes bum 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 bum, and then it kicks back into the way that the song introed. That also very Def Leppard. Um, That's funny because I'm made assuming a very much. Ma-
0: I've made a specific note about that that end that that note climb at the end of the middle eight. I really love it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, so you love Def Leppard, is what I'm saying. Clearly. Uh, which that is that feels like what mutt lang carried over into def leppard and was like here's where we're gonna here's the pocket that you guys are gonna jump into here because when as i said in the def leppard episode that high and dry album is where i would have thought that def leppard was going to become the new acdc they were going to become the 80s version of acdc and it didn't end up Going in that direction. And I think part of it was because Joe Elliott um, is not as much of a heavy guy and wanted to lean more in another direction. But also Mutt Lang, as he got more and more down the rabbit hole of producing and overproducing and stuff like that, started to shift away from that heavier element as well. But that magical Def Leppard out that high and dry album is that album where he was right in the thick of working with ACDC found this pocket of sound that he brought over to Def Leppard and they freaking locked it in for that album, dude. But uh, yeah, this, this song has just so many elements that I absolutely love.
0: Yeah. Um, So uh, just one for the sort of musos uh, here, actually, this song is the first one. It may be the only one on the album, actually where they employ a technique that is now very common, but at the time, I don't know whether ACDC, yeah, they probably weren't the first people to do it, but certainly not many people were. Which is that the first verse, as we said, it's very simple. Starts a very simple. It remains fairly simple, and it's very tight. It's very very dry and like you know the chugging is kind of light. There's lots of space, lots of silence, yep. and, and you know room to breathe. The second verse is much looser. The notes are all ringing a bit more. You know, after that buttoned down sort of version of the first verse. You've got this, the second verse just feels a bit more, you know, again, like it might go out of control. It doesn't, but it has that kind of feel. And that has become really, really common uh, right across the board, not just in sort of rock and hard rock, but in metal as well. It's very, very common in metal to have something that has really, really tight, uh, you know, sort of chugging riffs in the first verse. And then after the chorus, the second verse um you know or whatever whichever verse comes after the, your first chorus it then gets looser and you know the playing the notes just aren't palm muted quite as heavily and everything rings a little bit more um and i found it interesting that this is i think it's to say it's the only song on this album that actually does that and has that distinction um and it but it really serves it it really is one of the things that helps this song build up it builds to the chorus, and then the second at the chorus builds to the second chorus, which then builds through the middle eight, and then it all kind of comes back down to, yeah, nice, tight, clean playing for the end, which builds up again to a final release with the whole band playing an 11 right at the end, and another great solo as well, actually, at the end.
1: Yep, and then just like the... the And, and again, I think what helped them find in this album is that groove, right? Every mm. song has a groove to it that... It just locks in, in in a way that even though it feels like it might go off the rails, like it's 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 still rock solid. And um, yeah, and, and we haven't revisited the lyrics uh, for a little while, so let's check in here um, <laughs> with this little tidbit. It wasn't the first. It wasn't the last. She knew we was making love. I was so satisfied deep down inside like a hand in a velvet glove. I mean, that's <laughs> like some Robert Frost stuff right there. That is. Uh,
0: where do you think uh, Spinal Tap got it from? You know, <laughs>
1: yeah, that is that is poetic. Um, <laughs>
0: All right, well, you want to talk about groove? Let's move on then to track five, which is uh, "Beaten Around the Bush." <coughs>
1: Do you think I love the rev up in the I mean, beginning of the song?
0: It's a boogie. This is yeah. this is a boogie rhythm, and it is the first song to really break out of that kind of standard four-square rhythm that all of the other songs occupy. But you know, both before and after the song. It's the only song on the, on the album that has that and is a proper boogie. Yep. You know that kind of feel to it. Um, but it this one still, also
1: it, starts tight though, and in the second. The
0: it's, incre- it's still incredibly tight and they, I think this song really demonstrates just how tight the band was their timing and their simpatico rhythm is incredible because there's a lot of notes going on here you know this is actually fairly musically complex or t- yep. at least in the playing um and yet every single time it's nailed you know multiple times throughout the song that but bit it just not a single piece is out of place it's uh, it's kind of amazing which for me makes it all the more of a shame that I don't think this is actually a great song. The chorus is kind of Ehh.
1: it's kinda of non-existent, right? Yeah. It's just beating around the bush like that. But I do like the the sort of call and response um, you know, in the in the verse uh cadence, you know, where it's like yeah. he'll, he'll spit out a line and then it's dan and then he spits out a line and it's dan. And the cool thing too is that the second time around of the main um sort of rhythm line, Angus starts playing individual notes. Yes. As as the main... Like, the first time they play it through, it's clean. The second time they play it through, he starts uh, playing notes underneath it. Like, here and there, and adds a few squeals and stuff like that, which I think, again, solo work on this one is really good. Um, Apparently, and I don't remember this song, but apparently... The opening riff of the song, as you said, it's a boogie. I'm, but the opening riff of the song is very re- reminiscent of "Oh Well" by Fleetwood Mac.
0: Do you know that oh, song? I don't actually know. I'm not the biggest Fleetwood. I don't mind Fleetwood Mac, but I'm not the biggest listener. I might have heard it without remembering it.
1: Yeah, I'd have to look because I didn't. I just saw that noted somewhere, so I thought that I thought that was interesting. But yeah, it's a uh, it's a great sort of up tempo, keeping the feel of the first side of this album and kind of a pickup from. The uh, sort of a little bit slower tempo, um, Touch Too Much, that was before. Certainly not as good of a song as Touch Too Much, but it kind of picks things back up as we head into the end of the first side.
0: Yeah. Oh, here we are. Uh, A journalist, Phil Sutcliffe, said, quote, that it's almost a tribute, a reflection, I hesitate to say a copy, uh, unquote, of Oh Well by Fleetwood Mac, which apparently was a single before it was it was first released as a single and then put onto an album called Then Play On which I don't think I've ever heard late 60s album by Fleetwood Mac interesting yeah um so yeah i mean there's not a lot else to say about this song really because it is you know it's a it's a great demonstration of how well they play together as a band it's interesting that it's the only song that has that boogie feel yep but unfortunately it's not that great a song it's uh, and it would have been the end of side one wouldn't it on uh, on yep. the vinyl version yeah absolutely Yeah. All right. So flip over. Track six. Shot down in flames.
1: I mean, I feel like this is a classic ACDC song and one that would also fit very well in the Brian Johnson era of
2: ACDC.
1: It's
0: it's full-on, you know, back to full-on four on the floor, you know, straight-up rhythm. And another great opening riff as well.
1: Absolutely, and a a great sort of rolling bass line and then a bam, 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 bam. bam. Like, that's just that one, two, three, one, two, three. Like, that that whole... um, Think the bass line's great. Uh, but in again, in the second verse, they start adding a little bit extra, you know, they start getting a little bit loose with it. They start adding they start sort of playing it out um, in between just ban ban nah, it, then it's it nah, 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 nah. so there's like another phrase added in there, and yeah. it, it just continues to build. And then of course, when they hit the chorus, the cymbals crash and everything kicks into full gear. Um, this is another solo where I feel like, you know, they open the closet door and Angus comes running out and, <laughs> you know, uh, just uh, just kind of brings it. Although, like, it doesn't start as, like, completely uncaged, but he sort of builds up to that as it kind of goes. Um, I like how uh, the the drums, as they transition back from chorus to verse, um, they just sort of have that sort of rolling uh, feel to them. So, again, it's, it's, it's the little things that I think make some of these songs stand out and this is another one that it feels like they're just totally locked in but they're having fun with it um i love the little at the end of the song where bond scott's like eh, yeah at the end of that. So it's weird, so that. funny it makes me laugh every time that i hear it, uh, it yeah which, it just it kind of goes to remind you that like they take the music seriously but they're but there always is this feel with acdc that they're having
0: Fun. right they don't take themselves seriously yes yeah. dude
1: and yeah. i love that about them
0: yeah I, I agree and i think that is a large part of their appeal um this is another of my favorite songs on the album actually um i, I really like the chorus actually isn't the best on the album but it is still good um but everything else i yeah makes it one of my favorite songs this is also a good example of what you were talking about with uh the bass not doing what you expect um and it, again it's not complex but on the, I think it's the second bar of each verse line, the, because he's only playing two notes, you know, yep. but that higher note, that second note, he's not the same as the guitar. And it's, uh, I think, it, a perfect example of what they talked about in that video where he's actually playing the major third of that chord because Angus yep. is only playing the power chord version. So he, doesn't, he never plays the major third and instead the bass plays it. And this is one of those songs where he does exactly that. I think he also does that again on the final high note of the chorus. Um, But I couldn't quite tell. I I couldn't quite separate the sounds enough to be able to tell. But yeah, just another example of the the tiniest little change, the simplest little thing that, you know, elevates the the verse um, of this song, each verse of this song. And yeah, as I say, it's one of my favorites because it's just a really good groove rocking song.
1: Yep. Totally agree. I think it's a great opener for the second side. I think it's a classic ACDC tune. I love it.
0: Yeah. Uh So move on then to track seven, Get It Hot.
1: Only song in this album that I'm not completely in love with.
0: Oh, funny. Oh, okay, i I don't have a lot to say about it, but I like it. In that you know, it's like unlike a lot of what we've talked about before, this song really is exactly what it seems.
1: And I think that's what bothers not bothers like me. there.
0: Are, there's no counter notes. There's no no ghost notes. Nothing funny going on with the bass. The chord progression is really standard. There's nothing, you know, sort of that you can grab onto, but it is a good song. I think
1: I agree. Like I, my note says fun rock song, but to me, it's just not to the standard of the rest of the album because it doesn't have any of those elements. It's two minutes and 35 seconds long. I mean, it's not, it's (laughs) it's certainly not, it's certainly not taking up anybody's day or, uh, you know, uh, you know, dragging the album down or anything like that. It's a fine song, but it just, it's because it doesn't have any of those little extra elements that I think, um, it's just a little bit, to me, it's an it is it's an example of when people say all ACDC songs sound the same. This is right. an example of this where is a song I've, you could wheel out. Yes, actually. Yeah, I feel yeah. like when they when, and I don't want to call it laziness, but I feel like when they just when they don't add anything extra, that's where you can level the criticisms at. Well, all their songs kind of sound a little bit the same because every song that we've talked about so far has something in it. Yeah where you're like, oh, look, did you see what they did there? Like, you may have missed it. You might have missed it, but here it is. Uh, this is, like, exactly what it seems to be. And I think that's where um, sometimes people can criticize the, the sort of sameness of some of their stuff.
0: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I agree. I mean, and again, you know, Motorhead get accused of that a lot. And they yep. do have one or two songs. There are one or two songs of theirs where, uh, you know, you could you could interchange the riffs. Uh, from one song to the other and, you know, nothing else would change and it would still fit and everything. That Sometimes that is true. But uh, well, let's check
1: a, in on those lyrics again, Anthony. Doesn't
0: make it a bad song. But, uh, yeah, sometimes that is true of these. And unfortunately, this is one of them. But like I say, yeah, not a bad song. This Apart is a song lyrics. about
1: kind of <laughs> going out on the town and, and having a good time. So you have uh, nobody's playing Manilow, nobody's playing Soul, and no one's playing hard to get. Just good old rock and roll that's one that's a that's that's a that's a good uh now granted i mean as cheesy as some of these lyrics are they're still better than a million other <laughs> so many of the albums that we've talked about and some of the lyrics on some of them uh so but here's here's one you're gonna like i'm gonna bend you like a g-string conduct you like a choir so get your body in the right place will set the world on fire <laughs> i mean again that should be in a book somewhere <laughs>
0: I mean, he certainly had a way with metaphor. I'll give him that. He
1: certainly did. I mean, especially when he's literally talking about the same metaphor for 40 times. dozens and dozens of songs. And it's like, you got to give him some credit for creativity and some of that stuff. Yeah. Well, um, like I
0: say, it's the same credit I give Lemmy, you know, singing about sex, war and rock and roll, right. you know, for like 40 years or whatever, over and over and over again and making it different every time. That's impressive.
2: Yeah,
1: totally. <laughs>
0: All right, let's move on, though, to track eight. If you want blood, you've got it.
1: Boy, another classic ACDC song. I feel like one of the better choruses on the album.
0: Mm, Yeah, I don't know. This song, it's not bad, but it doesn't, I don't know. It's kind of, there's parts of this song that I really like. Like, I I really like the solo. Uh, It's actually, the solo for me is the best part of this track. Um, I think it's one of, if not his best solos on the album, actually. Um, It is the only track that fades out which is a, a definitely a minus <laughs> score. Um, yeah. uh, what impresses me most about it is the intro and how whoever's playing it, whether it's Malcolm Angus, I'm not entirely sure, is completely, absolutely, positively on time, like to the microsecond. And that is, with this intro, that is really impressive. I mean now it's possible that he was playing along to a drum track playing in his headphones you know that was that wasn't in the final mix that's possible but if you told me he wasn't I would believe you uh, well, and and that I think just as a display of kind of you know just sheer skill is really impressive
1: and I think that's indicative again of the attention to detail that Mutt as a producer brings to this right because you could see on a previous album maybe that not being as tight right right but here perfect another thing i love about the song is you mentioned the solo which is an absolutely great solo when they're bringing it back together after that solo they sort of play the the main riff but then they hit the individual notes uh you know how they they sort yeah. of play it out like in between i absolutely love that um this to me is a song about like putting everything you have into into the performance that you're giving the audience sort of thing. So I love the energy of this song. Um, I love Bon Scott screaming, you got it, you know, just like I could, to me, this is like such a crowd pleaser that I can see that playing out live on stage where, where he's, they're just giving it everything to the audience, you know? And so I just, it's, uh, I have a really nostalgic uh, feel for this particular song.
0: I I do feel like this is a song that, probably works better live than on record. I can imagine it being, yeah, a bit of a barnstorm alive. But as it stands with this, see, this is the album dip for me. Like Get It Hot, as I say, is fine. You know, it's a good song, but it's not, as we said, doesn't really have anything specific about it that you can hang your hat on. And then for me, this song is a bit of a dip despite a couple of nice highlights again. Um, and to be honest, then again, I mean, let, let's go on to track nine, Love Hungry Man. this track for me, this is the worst track on the album for, for Marley. Oh. I'm sorry, man. It's, it's a shame because no, the well, base, you, you the know base who work in, on uh, this is great.
1: You know who you're in agreement with? Angus who? Young. Oh, really? <laughs> yep. I think he said something like, I, 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 he, I forget what he said about it. He does not like the song. He's like, I don't know what I was doing when I wrote this one, but, uh, but basically he does not like the song. uh, and I forget where I read that, but it was it was definitely in prep for ah, this right. uh episode. So I I like this one. It had to me it has kind of a lighter feel. Um, I love the bass line in the song. Um
2: Yeah, I mean again, the ba- The chorus, the the chorus is, doesn't yeah, do a lot,
1: which I think is 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 a valid criticism of this one. Like it's just they're just singing Love, Hungry Man. Um and it's the same bass line that's sort of answering the chorus there, but I do I think for me it's probably the bass line that that really um, brings it in and it's got a good groove to it. so I
0: It does have a good groove, yeah I mean like, the rhythm section basically is the best thing about this song.: Yeah, uh, and it is nice that the bass gets to actually do something, you yeah. know, and play some funky some funky bass. Um, well, in, in a
1: song where you can really hear the bass clearly yeah. from everything else, right? So he's it's not only is he getting a good bass line here, but he's getting a good bass line where that is the standout instrument on this song.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I, I do appreciate that. But yeah, as a song, it just doesn't doesn't hold together for me all that well. Unlike, so let's go on to the final track then, track 10, Night Prowler.
2: midnight And there's a full moon in the sky You hear The sun would shine
1: of the greatest songs ever written i don't know whether I'm i go that far i <laughs> fucking love this song dude Bon scott's performance on this song is absolutely brilliant and terrifying like his vocal performance on this song i to me it's it might be my favorite Bon scott vocal performance of any song that he's that he's wow. ever sung on like i love this song now granted the subject matter of this song is very dark but you have the sort of slow bluesy build of like a song like ride on from acdc which was another one of their sort of slow bluesy songs but the menace of his performance of the chorus while they're singing underneath him is so good i love it I love this song.
0: It is a great chorus. I mean, I'll I'll agree with you there, absolutely. Bon Scott's performance is great, and it is a brilliant chorus. Um, And the vocal harmonies, yeah, this is one where they really, really serve to, because they're not just doing a double-track vocal. It is actual, you know, separate harmony uh, vocal lines. Oh,
1: my God, it's so good.
0: Yeah, really serves the chorus and helps, you know, bring it up. Um, It is really bluesy, isn't it? You mentioned that, and it is... This is probably the most, apart from maybe the boogie song, this is probably the most bluesy song on the album. Uh,
1: for sure. I, I definitely feel like Which it is. Which I think is, is it, interesting,
0: given that it's also the slowest.
1: The slowest, the longest song on the album, uh, very different from all of the other songs on the album, a very dark song, vocally very different from every song on the album, and the closer of the album.
0: Right. And that's the other thing. Is it a good closer? We talk about this all the time. And I, I'm honestly not sure. I mean, I don't know where else on the album you could put it. It
1: has. I think it is. That's exactly you just said it. Like, I think it can only go here. You can't. You certainly can't open the second side with this. No, you can't. What are you going to follow? You certainly can't open the
0: album with it. And if you put it in the middle of a side, it would just drag everything down.
1: Right. Like if you look at side two, what song on side two? I mean, the only song, if, if you were going to put this anywhere on on side two other than the last song, you would have to make Shot Down in Flames the final song on the album because yes. you'd have to end on a super solid song. And so I, I, think you, I think you said it. Like, I don't think it fits anywhere else. It's the longest song in the album, but it is a song that as soon as we get to side two, I'm already looking forward to it. Like, I know because and, and right, it, right. it gives me that peace of mind of knowing that the album ends on a high note. Which then makes me want to listen to it again because it to me it just it bookends and solidifies what a brilliant album this is and so uh, it, and obviously I'm like completely in love with this song but uh, it, I mean but it I does do like end, it as a closer
0: it, the, the the end of the song is loud and banging which helps I think but yeah you know thinking about that whole as we've talked before about the idea that you know ideally the closing song should make you want to immediately listen to the album again that's where I'm not sure where it entirely succeeds. Because I don't know, it's like it's a good song. I do like it. And again, where else could you put it? But it just feels so different to the rest of the album
1: that it is very different from yeah, the rest of the album.
0: It's a weird one.
1: Um, Which but it, to it, me, I mean, just adds another. It certainly answers any criticism of like, oh, all their songs sound the same. Oh, well, yeah. This yeah, one doesn't yeah. sound like anything else on the album. So it's like it gives it a. I'm level not sure it of- sounds
0: like any other ACDC song.
1: You could be right. Like I said, it's got a little bit of a ride on feel to it, but certainly doesn't go in the direction that this one goes. And so this this mm-hmm. takes it in a much sort of darker. And it's funny because he ends with a quote from Mork and Mindy where he says, Nanu, nanu. Um, Shout because, nanu, which, nanu, which kind of like the end of <laughs> Shot Down in Flames is just kind of a reminder that, like, I'm not this guy. I'm singing a song about.
0: Right. I'm telling a, a story. Character. Yeah,
1: I'm telling yeah. a story. And 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 I I actually appreciate that he ends the song like that, because this song got ACDC into quite a bit of trouble. Um, This Mm. was a song that the Night Stalker, uh, and I pulled it up here. Where did I put it? Uh, The Night Stalker, who is Richard Ramirez, who back in 1985 was uh, responsible for like 15 murders in the uh, or attempted murders in the Los Angeles area. He was the Night Stalker. He was a fan of ACDC. He uh, was a fan of the song Night Prowler. And he said during his trial, he said, hail Satan and showed off a pentagram that was carved into his palm. And it brought a lot of publicity negatively to the band because it, much like any of those um, back in the day, any sort of crime or, or a case where heavy metal or rock and roll could be thrown in as an influence. They all had it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously this happened years after the album came out, but this was uh, something that because he was a professed ACDC fan sort of brought uh, some negativity down on the band so
0: um oh so yeah, right yeah no, I've, sort of, I've just it's no. a, yeah i've just found the the bit on wikipedia about it yeah this is kind of disingenuous the band maintained that the song had been given a murderous oh, connotation yeah. by ramirez but it's actually about a boy sneaking into his girlfriend's bedroom at night while her parents sleep in spite of such lyrics as you don't feel the steel till it's hanging at your back yeah I yeah. mean, you can't <laughs> no, no there was no <laughs> you're not in anyone
2: dude
1: and again, that that sort of uh, excuse was given well after the death of Bon Scott, because, of course, this is 85 when that happens. The album right, comes yeah. out in 1979. Um, well, he Clearly, he wrote this song about a, a, a prowler, about somebody who's breaking into people's houses and, and is a murderer. And yeah. so, um, yeah, there's no, but, uh, yeah, so that excuse. And it's a shame, lame.
0: actually, because that line, <clears throat> you don't feel the steel till it's hanging out your back, is one of the best lines in the song. For sure, dude. Like, I mean, you know, that's a great As line. a
1: story, that is a chilling, chilling tale. And what's amazing is that here you have this fun rock and roll band who is captures a vibe on this song that is very chill-inducing. I feel like he, the, the role that he inhabits in the song with his vocal performance is very uh, scary. And yeah. that's... There's a lot to be said for that, because, again, we're talking about Bon Scott, who a lot of people are not a fan of the way that he sings. Um, for me, he's one of my all-time favorite um, frontmen, for sure. But I just feel like he gave a hell of a performance on this song. And the song. And the bluesy nature of the song itself, and the fact that it's pretty simple and straightforward, it really is the vocal performance and the chorus that goes along with it that delivers on this song. Oh,
0: absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a great make sort song, of bluesy
1: yeah. guitar solo from Angus that, again, stays within the song.
0: That's the other th- part of the bluesy element that I was going to mention. Yeah, was that like all of Angus's solo playing on this song is really bluesy. Yep. And, and, and really
1: good. And, yeah, and fit, fits perfectly within that. So, um, so I do like it as the closer, um, whether it's because of the fact that you really couldn't put it anywhere else, or um, for me, more of it solidifying as like, man, what a brilliant album. And this is just. A shining example
0: of that
2: mm.
0: yeah well and i mean that is the close of the album and uh, yeah it's like i say i'm just i'm unsure whether listening to that track would necessarily make me want to then flip over and you know i'm more likely to want to start listening to an iron maiden album <laughs> after, <Yeah. laughs> after listening to that track to be honest um but it is a great track and overall it's a great album. like i say i think it does dip i think it has that second side dip that so many albums from this era and from the 80s had. See it was such a common thing. Uh and I think it does suffer from that. But overall, it, you know, there's a reason it's a classic. Yeah. Who am I to argue with what was it, nine times platinum or whatever?
1: Yeah, let's see. Let me look back at my notes here. Uh I think do where's all my platinum stuff? Seven times platinum in the Seven US. Right. So that's oh, not it, counting anywhere outside right. this is just platinum from the from the US. Uh yeah and then of course now uh, tragically Bon scott dies less than a year i think it was seven months after this album it was 1980 february of 1980 he passes away uh at the age of 33 Ah oh, man so they put this album out he dies in february of 1980 one month later it's certified platinum in the u.s so he never lived to see the success in the U.S. that they had, you know, wanted and tried to get. And Well,
0: well and, he didn't live to see it, you know, like actually officially declared a platinum album. But I think, you know, this album was a fairly swift hit from what I gather. So I, I think right. he, he lived to see, to realize that this was their most successful album and it was a hit. Um but, but it think is a of shame where they were going see. oh yeah i mean obviously i mean it's a you know any death for, young death from uh, what mean, was it alcohol poisoning wasn't it um, yeah he, i think he's, he's he
1: choked on his own vomit um oh is
0: he another another case of right yeah it's
1: yeah i have the uh i have the article there so february 19th, 1980 he was found dead he'd been out drinking with friends um he passed out in his car and ultimately choked to death on his own vomit he was 33 years old jesus yeah unbelievable and and there was stories at the time of even um i think it was kramer the first producer they brought in on the album that that talked about the fact that um even at the stages of first recording the album they were having a tough time keeping bond sober you know in terms of recording and stuff like that so he he was already in in pretty rough shape and uh and obviously that just that culminated in not even a year out from putting out what was their most well-received album to date that he passes away. And then somehow the band brings in Brian Johnson, brings back Mutt Lang, records back in black. And becomes one of the biggest
0: rock bands in the world.
1: In the the history of rock and roll. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tragic and fascinating story. And then, I mean, to, to talk about tragedy, let's carry it full back to, uh, November of 2017, when Malcolm Young dies, you know, from complications due to dementia. So here you have the guy who was the architect of one of the greatest bands of all time, who dementia is the is just the cruelest, yeah. uh, you know, my, my father actually is dealing with dementia now. And I, I have to tell you, it's like, I think for anybody who, it, it's a terrifying disease anyways, but for anyone who whose uh life is built around the creative arts to have that part of you just start to slip away is just such a tragedy like so brutal and and not only that but their brother george passed away a month before malcolm did oh i didn't know that october of 2017 november of 2017 malcolm passes so um, now, granted, Malcolm had been around to see all of that success and to see the fruits of his labor and to, to you know, see all of that as as did George uh, and, and George um, and Harry came back to produce uh, ACDC albums again. They came back with I think it was the Blow Up Your Video album, which was the tour that I saw them on for the very first time um, was they had come back to produce. So that so that that eventually um, came back around full circle as well. Um, because obviously at some point Mutt moves on to, to do other things as well. Um But yeah, the the story of ACDC and the, here's the crazy thing. I have never read a book about like the history and biography of ACDC. But going back and listening to this album and really getting back into my love for this band has made me want to like consume everything about the history of this band, because it really, this is a special album, and this is just an absolutely amazing band. And I, I pulled the set list for the, this was my first concert ever.
0: Oh, wow, you got the set list?
1: C- yep. September 2nd, 1988. Wow. At the Springfield Civic Center, the the city that I now live in. Wait, so hang on, How, you concert. were
0: what, 14 years old?
1: I was 14 years old. I had just turned 14 that July. And so uh, the opener was White Lion, who, as anybody who listens to the show knows, is also one of my favorite bands. Uh, and then ACDC comes on. Heat Seeker is the song they open with. As I mentioned, kicks the door out of with the, the missile, missile. yeah. Jumps on the stage. So uh, I'll just run you through the uh, Heat Seeker, Shoot to Thrill, Dirty Deeds, Back in Black, Who Made Who, Jailbreak, which is one of my all-time favorite ACDC songs. Hell's Bells. That's the Way I Want to Rock and Roll, which was off Blow Up Your Video. Uh, The Jack, You Shook Me All Night Long, High Voltage, Whole Lot of Rosie, and Let There Be Rock. I mean, talk about an amazing set That's a hell of a set.
0: Hell uh, of a set list. And and right, and here is an example of just how prevalent they are. Of Of that track list, there's only one song in there that I don't think I've ever heard. Right, You know, that I, w- that I wouldn't know. And I'm not a fan. Like I say, I, I, I respect and appreciate ACDC, but I don't own any of their albums, or I didn't until, you know, until we started prepping for this episode. Um, And yet, almost every song in that set list, I know it.
1: <laughs> well, and then, so then their encore after that set list was Highway to Hell. That's the only song off of this album that they played on that night that I saw them. And then uh, TNT. And then for those about to rock, we salute you, which ends with the cannons firing, which I still remember clear as a bell to this day. (laughs) Um, So that was my first concert ever really cemented my love for ACDC. When I was in high school, the patch on the back of my jacket was the who made who Uh, album cover uh, of ACDCs that, uh, that I wore throughout my being in high school. So yeah, ACDC holds a very, very, very special place in my heart. And, is had to be the last choice you know for this sort of theme of my my volume which was respect your elders because i mean i feel like they get a lot of respect for being legends i don't necessarily think they get the respect on the musicianship front that they deserve right and as um, we've
0: discussed yeah making yeah. you know sort of simple stuff that is nevertheless you know has more to it than you might realize at first listen. Yep.
1: Amazing. Uh, and,
0: and still has that power, yeah. Fantastic. All right, this has been uh, this is going to wind up one of our longer episodes. <laughs> but that's Shocker. okay. Yeah, I mean they deserve it. Um it's so, all right. So this is the penultimate episode of this volume. Yeah. So before we go to our homework before I tell you what our final episode is going to be, I will go through the usual spiel and remind everyone, uh, if you enjoy listening to the show, please do spread the word, tell your friends, rate us on iTunes, Google play podcasts, go and buy a t-shirt. All of this stuff links to everything is at thrashingoutpodcast.com. And of course, if you want to support us directly and help us keep making the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash Uh You can get in touch by going to the show home com, which has links to uh, the show email, our Twitter accounts, um, and of course you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrashing out.
1: And you can get a goblin thrash t-shirt. do T oh you can get the, oh, you did mention the, I t-shirt did mention t-shirt the t-shirts this time. Did I tell you that I just bought <laughs> two more of them? No, you didn't know. Oh my God. I think I'm our best customer. Like <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding you dude. Like I just bought. And the cool thing about is Redbubble, right? That they're up on. Yeah. 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 The cool thing about that is that there's so many different colors that you could put it on. And I'm telling you, man. The horns show up great on basically any background Oh, fantastic! And so i think i have like a i have a black one i have a gray one i now have like a like a dark blue one looks great on that's all that's crazy I mean, yep.
0: and just to remind everybody by the way the reason that we do them on redbubble is because you know you may because obviously i'm over here in the uk brian's in america but the whole thing about redbubble is that they have local fulfillment stores so no matter where you are I mean, obviously, if you're in the wilds of, you know, somewhere obscure, maybe not. But if you're, you know, in a sort of major, uh, you know, population center, they were. It's not like you have to get stuff shipped from overseas. You know, it won't cost you a fortune in shipping. You won't have to pay import taxes. You know, they right. have fulfillment centers in several different places around the globe. So no matter where you are, you can get stuff delivered to you much more cheaply and quicker than if it was all centralized in one place in the US or somewhere in the UK. That's why we do them at Redbubble. It does mean that they cost sometimes a little... The shirts themselves cost sometimes a little bit more than at places like Cafe Press, but it means that it gets to you quicker uh, and your overall cost, because you're not paying as much for shipping, is generally lower. So, you know, do if that's been holding you back, do go and check them out and don't worry about that. All right. Last episode of the... Uh, volume of volume four, not of the podcast for people who might be new listeners. Don't worry. This isn't the end of the show. (laughs) We, we do this in volumes. uh, And this is going to be the last episode of volume four. Uh, And it is going to be, and again, this is part of my sort of loose theme, uh, which I haven't yet revealed for this uh, volume. We are doing white zombies, breakthrough album, Astro creep, 2000,
1: Yes. yes nice dude yeah, i'm excited I, about that i told
0: you we'd do white zombie at some point uh you know it uh it was bound to happen and i mean yeah for people who aren't familiar with the band astro creep it's the one that has the songs on it you've heard basically yep. you know absolutely pretty, almost not quite but almost every song uh that white zombie are known for was on this album it was 1995 this album was released, and uh, yeah, it you know it was easily their biggest hit, and actually their last album as a band before Rob Zombie split up the band and went solo. Um, yep. And yeah, and I, I love it. It's one of my favorite albums, you know, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, so I really that like is it too, but I'll about.
1: be honest, I haven't listened to it in quite some time, so I'm looking forward to jumping back into it. Oh, I,
0: I've I've listened to it, I mean, literally hundreds of times over the years, and I still fairly regularly listen to it yeah so i mean i am enjoying listening to it with maybe a more discerning ear but to be yeah. honest i have kind of already done that i actually learned a lot of what i know about sonic production like music production in sonic terms from listening to this album because this is so sonically this is such an amazing album that uh yeah i i ripped off a lot of <laughs> the stuff they do on this album in the way that i uh make music and mix music I'm
1: looking forward to hearing more about that in our next episode.
0: Indeed, which will be coming to you at some point soon, hopefully in about a month's time. Uh, And until then, take care, everyone, and keep thrashing.
1: Take care, everybody.
0: I nicked your line again. No, 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 that's fine.
2: (laughs)